I had to shake him on my last case, big O don't play. Welcome back to another episode of the Musky Hunks podcast. Jeez, I'm one of your six hosts this evening, Ryan Reed. We also have a very special guest on the phone, and we're going to have yet another fantastic discussion surrounding the sport of musky fishing. We might get into a little electronics. We'll see. We'll see. So before we get into that, the other hunks, I should just say everyone's here, but we're going to introduce everybody. We're going to start with Mr. Ryan Elizondo, our, uh, our, our Western, our Western hunks basis. Good evening, boys. How are you guys feeling? I'm a little under the weather too. Good. I always nice. thought he was in Washington, DC. Oh, <laughs> that's that's a, closer. The wrong I Washington. I go catch the big tigers with him a lot quicker. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's nice to see your smiling face, even though you're not feeling well. We also have on the call tonight somebody else that's not feeling well at all, Mister Mister Dottie Swink. You know, as I'm thinking about this, I'm pretty sure I started getting sick right around the same time I opened that fucking tough shed from Ryan Elizondo. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. <laughs> Oh, hi guys! All hi, right. It's good to see you, sir. We also have on the call tonight, Mister Nick Beesler. Good evening. Excited for our guest this evening. Glad to be here. I uh, I do want to point out that our last guest, Greg Jones, also referenced the Beesler. It's catching. <laughs> it's catching fire. It's only taken 96 episodes. Right. <laughs> Slow build. Slow build. Slow build. We also have on the call tonight, Mr. Nate Budazuski. Love this show. I love it. Owen has to correct. First time caller. Budacheski. Budacheski. Nate Bud. I love you too. I don't want to mention your shirt because I don't want any. I, don't I got wanna... it for our, I got it for our guest tonight. You, ah, dude, that is so that is so bad. That's so bad. <laughs> I like that. Well, I bought I bought it out of a a duffel bag behind Milan Puskar Stadium from a you know so and I, now I I have a reason to wear it. So you know it's legit. The real deal. We're I always thought gonna... it was odd that Pitt copied West Virginia's colors. Is that seems what like, happened? Uh, seems is, is that not it? I have not mute him for 30 seconds or something. <laughs> All right. We also have on the call tonight Mr. Owen Seaman and Big O's Buckdales. Good evening, gentlemen. Glad to be here tonight. Looking forward to uh, a lively conversation we're gonna have here with a bunch of us online. Yeah, this is crazy. We have like been twos and threes of us. Now we're all here and bombarded our guests this evening so well that's good because i don't have much to you know one of the things we're going to talk about is electronics and i am just clueless so i'm i'm going to be i'm going to be listening a lot here tonight when it comes to you guys talk about electronics but we'll get there so 
Ryan, you want to go ahead and introduce our guest? All right. So everybody, I would say in the Muskie community, this is a this is a uh, this is a guest that we've had on this podcast before. Yeah. Return. So this guest. is a return guest. And with that said, we have I would say somewhat local, right? You're in the tri-state area most of the time. Yep. Most well, six months out of the year now, but yeah. All right, we'll take it. You're you're still I'm kind local. of the, I'm local. You're you're still a local boy. Yeah, I'm local. We have the owner of Gibson's Guide Service. We have the owner of Muskie Bumper and a co-host of Mayhem's 10,000 Cast, which, by the way, you guys can see, what is that, the Keys Network on KOTV? Yep, KOTV on uh, on any Roku device or on YouTube. YouTube's a lot easier way, but you can do whatever you want. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Co-host, that is Chase Gibson. Out of the great state of West Virginia. What's up, buddy? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Um, I do wish we had at least like two or three more people on this phone call. (laughs) Just so it would fill out the nine squares instead of... Yeah, just to make sure conversation flows nice and easy. Because with six guys, it might be... Well, actually seven, including me. It might be a little slow conversation tonight. (laughs) Well, we we, we just love to surprise people and and show up when... You know, typically we'd have two or three of us on. So, well, buddy, we're glad to have you back here. You're a big draw. You you got everybody out of bed tonight. Kept us all up. (laughs) I, uh, I thought I joined a a college class or something. I didn't know what was going on here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. (laughs) This is a study group. This is exactly what that's. West Virginia, uh, university shirt going on. Really thought so. West fucking Virginia. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't know about <laughs> West Flip in Virginia. Thank you. I, I've asked repeatedly for the F words to stop, and it just gets ignored every <laughs> week. Every week. Green light. I wore it. I didn't say it. That was it. Is it yeah, a requirement yeah, to be a WVU fan? I, you can't can't stifle my creativity, Ryan. You gotta edit it after the fact. <laughs> All right, fair. I agree. I, I do want to ask, so Nick, go ahead and ask that again, because this is something that's before we get into the real talk here. Is everyone in West Virginia, like, obligated to be a WVU fan? Uh, I guess so, but I'll tell you this. I never had time for football games. All I ever did was go fishing, so I never paid attention to any of it. Yeah. That's, but that's everyone, kinda... everyone I know, yeah, they, they go with WVU, so... That was the feeling I I had, but wasn't this true. is this is interesting to me because I we my company is an office down in Charleston, and not too far north is Marshall University. If I if I am correct there, yeah, yeah. And I feel like the office there was like split. It was like fifty fifty. I guess it just depends on where you live, but yeah, I'm I'm only like forty minutes south of Morgantown, so everyone around here that I know is WVU fan. Yeah, makes sense. But now you're splitting half of your year nowadays, aren't you? Yep. Yeah, I'm going to going to Minnesota in the summer. I go up there and I don't know. This year I went up and end of June, beginning of July, and I stayed there all the way up until the first week of December. So. Oh wow! There, Holy cow! Yeah, yeah. I was I've uh, stayed at Brad's. Thank God that he and Carrie haven't kicked me out yet, but. <laughs> I, I stayed my stay a lot longer than normal this year, and I think Carrie had enough of me. Brad, Brad hated to see me leave, but Carrie had enough. Yeah. But 
So were you, I mean, you're up there just guiding every day or were you, is that what no. you were there for? No, uh, I mean, like the first year I went up there, I didn't have musky bumper and I kind of just went up there because Brad invited me up there and I thought I'd be stupid not to go to Minnesota. So I went up and basically just fished and then um, filmed, and but I did not know going up there that we were going to be filming. Um, and then by the end of the summer, he's talking to me about this tv show that he's doing and he's like i want you to be a part of it and i'm like heck yeah dude of course, of course. um so, so now i've just kind of went up there for that well last year um i didn't have musky bumper yet but i well, i guess it's two years ago now two years ago i went up didn't have musky bumper yet i didn't really guide i guided i don't know maybe a week total through the entire summer and the biggest reason was is um, I wanted a year to at least one year to really figure out a couple bodies of water there around him to where I felt comfortable to guide. I didn't want to start guiding and have no idea um, what's going on in the lake. And and I, I just when I guide, I, I need to know what's going on. That's my problem. I, I'm very bad sense. because I could probably go there and be fine. But a bunch of blank trips ruins me in the head. So I can't take it. Um so I did not guide. And then I got musky bumper. So this year I've been extremely busy with musky bumper and didn't even really guide back home. Um, I did like 10 days in Ohio. And then I did a couple trips in Minnesota this summer during my slow periods in the board business. Um, other than that, though, I haven't really got it at all. I'm hoping to guide more this year. Um, I've had a lot of repeat clients from the past couple of years have been bugging me all last year. Well, not bugging me, but reaching out the last year. Um, wanting trips and I feel horrible because I've told them no so many times but hopefully I get those guys in the boat this year um, and actually get somewhat of a decent little guide schedule figured out for myself now when you bought musky bumper did you realize like how much work it was going to be or did you uh, a, what was the thought process there the the entire thought process behind musky bumper um, and a lot of this goes sound like I'm complaining I'm not complaining whatsoever I love it but um the thought process of it was, is I was guiding at Stonewall in West Virginia. The, the stocking was going downhill kind of quick and they had that hot water study added onto it, made a lot more fish die that shouldn't have died. I kind of got scared, scared feet or whatever you want to call it, uh, cold feet about thinking about long-term guiding there. And I'm like, all right, I have to find something just in case this doesn't this ruins the lake. Um, so I found musky bumper. I bought it off Jeremy Sevis talking with him when I was looking at all the numbers and whatnot. Um, he was, he said that he was working like 22, 23 hours a week. Cause he had a full-time job. So I'm thinking young me, I'm like, Oh freak, I can do 22 hours a week and then guide the rest of the week and be completely fine. What I didn't take into consideration, or maybe I didn't hear him say, or maybe he never said, was that he had some help. Like his wife was stickering the boards. And to put in perspective, that's five minutes per board is how fast I've gotten after one year. I can do one board in five minutes. Um, he had that help. He had a couple of friends doing certain components. And he was just doing like a couple steps where it's got 15 steps. Well, now... I'm doing all 15 steps unless I can con my dad or my buddy Doug or a couple other of my friends to come over and help me work for a couple hours after their full day of work, which I hate doing. Um, but I've definitely been in that situation. Brad helped me in Minnesota as well as a couple other dudes. 
but 90 80% of the time it's me 100% and it was definitely more than 22 hours a week um so my original plan was to get it work on musky bumper guide at the same time um that quickly became musky bumper from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed for a couple months for sure cuz i bought it um into december so the beginning of show season for one Two, all the retailers seem to order a lot more boards and are selling a lot more boards this time of year. So this is a very busy time of year. So I bought it pretty much during the busiest time of year possible. Um, and I kind of got tied down quick. Um, quit fishing, not hardly fishing at all, which absolutely killed me. Um, but I'm getting her dialed in now and uh, just finally getting to where I feel comfortable about taking a couple days off here and there and guiding a little bit. I'm just envisioning you like traveling around with a with a boat behind you with like a, a a double trailer set up with a trailer full of bumpers and the I really need I, I might have posted it actually. I can't remember. But when I drove from my house to Brad's house for the summer, my thank God I have a six twenty tiller that's no console in it. That is an amazing trailer. I had boards, boxes, bubble wrap, everything I could possibly fit in that boat in there tight put the uh the cover over top of it and then i had the bed of my truck completely full and the back seat and passenger seat completely full of crap i couldn't see nothing driving down the road in my mirrors or anything and my boat was way heavier obviously because it had all that crap in it but i have pictures of it. i mean i had her packed to the rim to get up there because the original plan was, was i was just going to drive up there with my box trailers all the stuff and set up shop at brad's and then just fish with him i couldn't take the six months away from being away from my boat and not being able to just go fishing in my boat by myself whenever I want to. So I made it work by hauling the ranger up with all the stuff. Just got to weld a, weld a receiver onto the back of the boat trailer and yeah, you know, double it up. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've, so, I've got her figured out now. I don't need to take too much back and forth, but. I got to ask this. I don't know if we asked this question to you, Chase, before, but I'm, I'm just trying to think through this because like, you know, buying a, a business like that, running your own business, like you're relatively young still, like that I've always like kicked around the idea of like starting my own business, starting my own consulting firm, stuff like that. Is that like, was that scary to you at all to like take that on? Or were you just like in the mindset, like, this is what I want to do. And you just kind of went after it. I'm just curious, like from a business standpoint, how you handled that. Honestly, everything I've done since I've been out of high school has been a scary step. Right. So like I've had one real job where I had a boss and that was working in a boot store all through high school. Um, I always have a backup plan, but guiding was a scary step. I mean, around here, guiding really isn't a thing. It still really isn't a thing. But back then there was nobody doing it. And like my dad, I'm talking to my dad. I'm like, dude, I, I got to try this guiding thing. Like I have to do it. I really think I can do it. And, you know, he's supporting me, but you can tell he's kind of like, yeah, I don't know if he's going to be able to make it doing that. Well, then I do it. I'm pretty darn successful in the first two years of doing it. Um, so that gave me a lot of confidence to take those chances. And then with Musky Bumper, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I can handle this. This is this is completely fine. Um, so, yeah, it is it is a little scary to do something like that, but. I guess if you're if you're driven and and that is your only option, like I didn't have I mean, I have a plan B, but I really don't want to do that plan B. I got to make plan A work. So I just put that in my head. 
do what needs to be done and, and get it done and don't worry about anything else. And if you, if you're like that, I think you're going to be successful with whatever you decide to do. So it is scary, but I had enough confidence in myself that I can put my head down and get her done. Yeah. That's super cool. I just, I'm like a fan of that because I've never personally been able to do it. And I always yeah. like, I listen to these stories and I'm like, man, that's, that's super cool to me. It is. Yeah. And I, what I, I'm really interested to the, to hear how you're dealing with buying a business and it being successful. You know what I mean? Like you figuring out, Hey man, this business takes a little bit more time than I really factored into it, but you know, you're figuring it out as you go, you know, Cause like you said, you, you got to make plan a work. You, you got to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I've watched or listened to some podcasts is like professional bass fishing. And like, it's funny, this little side side note on that. When I watch fishing stuff, I watch professional bass fishing and just certain bass people. I don't really watch musky fishing whatsoever. And it's weird because I don't really bass fish ever, but I look up to a lot of those guys um, cause in my opinion, they're way farther ahead than any in the musky industry is, um, with electronics, with just everything. So I watched a lot of that. Well, there's a guy on there talking about, he's, he was completely broke, gets on the Bass Pro Tour and he had to make it work. He didn't have a plan B, so he had to make it work. And he's talking about how that makes a humongous difference. He's like, guys, I've seen guys come into the, the Bass Tour or whatever, and they have a plan B. Those guys don't want it as bad as I do. So they're never going to get past me yeah they might beat me a tournament or whatever but i'm going to outlast them because this is my only option and i definitely agree with that and i feel like i've sort of done that not to that extent because i'm young and can take the chances for sure is another huge reason to me doing it um but it's it's cool to see that in the industry when you hear successful people in the fishing industry talk about what they did a lot of them have the same story is that they that is the only thing that they're doing. They're putting their mind to it and they're getting it done. And it's, it's really cool. And it's cool because any young kid, I mean, any young kid listening, they could do that. I mean, I was, what was I? 19 when I started guiding, I really could have started guiding when I was 18, but I really wasn't sure about a certain going back to where I'm talking about me guiding is I wasn't sure about like this two month section on, on Stonewall. I couldn't really catch them that good. And I did not want to start guiding and not be able to catch them for two months. So I went out there every day in those two month period, figured it out. The next year I started guiding. So now in 12 months of the year, I know what to do, know where to go, know how to catch them and whatnot. So I felt a lot more confident in that. Um, but I don't know. It's just preparation and being able to take risks and young age, you can do it. This is the time to do it when you're young for sure. I, these guys are going to hate me for asking this question, but I got to know, like from the bass standpoint, who do you watch? Like, who's your favorite bass fisherman? If, if I sit down and I'm watching a video, it's going to be the most entertaining is DC Fishing, Dustin Connell. I love DC. I don't know why, but I love the dude. Um, I think it's just because he's real and that you can, you can tell who what kind of guy he is. Um, him, and I'll watch a little bit of Jacob Wheeler. Jacob Wheeler's not as um, – He's not as entertaining, but the sucker's a really good fisherman. And I, I watch that stuff and I've learned a lot of my musky fishing stuff from bass fishing. Not just watching stuff, but like talking to bass dudes that are really good on Stonewall. I figured out a lot of little hidey hole things that musky dudes are still not doing to this day that all the bass dudes go down through there and catch muskies. And they're like, oh, it's a stupid musky. And I'm right in behind them catching them. I'm like, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing, but I'm watching what they're doing. I tell, I tell, Tons of my clients and 
and just people that ask me about musky fishing and that this is mainly a southern conversation all over like Seth shad and whatnot i tell them i'm like you know how stupid we are i'm like what we're throwing these big baits i'm like it's stupid i was like i guarantee you if i give you a bass rod today and i have you parallel cast the bank all day today you'll catch two muskies but i guarantee you this you show up to the boat ramp and i'm a musky guy and i hand you two bass rods you're not going to be very happy and that's a fact. I guarantee you that's the thing. I mean, a guy, I mean, a guy that's a musky fisher for five to ten years, he thinks he knows what he's doing, whatever, and he probably does. And he walks up to a guide trip with me. And if I handed him a bass rod and I said, We're bass fishing all day today, he'd he probably yeah. wouldn't even go. He'd be mad. Right. He'd be like, I'm yeah. getting scared. But we'd probably catch two or three fish. I've never been able to do that. I've never had clients where I've done that. But if I did, I'd probably catch a lot more fish during like april april i don't care who you are how good a musky fisherman are if you go to stonewall in like april when the shad's spawning you will never outfish the bass fisherman on that lake not a chance i don't care who you are oh, you're I'm talking ryan reed's language uh, right well now. i'm <laughs> smiling for two reasons because i know tommy two crocs is going to listen to that and go uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> and then i'm also sitting here like that's kind of my jam too like i kind of like throwing that bass stuff in the in the winter and in the, in the spring Oh, I love it. I love it too. I mean, uh, I've caught them on anything you can think of out there. I've caught them on obviously square bills, spinner baits, buzz baits, amazing, a bass buzz baits, like best topwater ever on Stonewall for muskies. Like fat bastards, I've caught like maybe two fish on them. Uh, the bomb squad flap tail, I've caught two or three fish on that. A bass size buzz bait, ba a bass size buzz bait, and then like the little bastard from Lake X is that's all you need. If you ain't throwing that, your your topwater bite is iffy unless it's freaking perfect conditions. But if you throw a, a bass buzz bait or like a little tiny whopper plopper or a, a little bastard, you will catch some fish. It's it's insane. It's annoying, but it's insane. Because I go from Minnesota in September all the way up until mid-October throwing like cannonball juniors, cannonballs, just giant yeah. topwaters. I, I was gonna ask, like, how do you adjust between Oh, it's it's you know it's weird. Um I will say this though, this year. This year, I I was catching on a cannonball, which is the humongous, the biggest one Lake X makes up in Minnesota, like all September. And I come home, and I'm like, God, this will suck. I got this little bastard and this little tiny stuff. And I actually put in um, some bigger baits into my topwater lineup, and it was the day, though. It was a perfect topwater day. Fit, the shad were skipping all day long up shallow. The muskies were up shallow. And I did get bit on a bait that I never would have thought I got bit on. It was a it was a giant creeper, which is like a it was a it was a creeping stein, like a knockoff of a creeping stein. I can't remember what the guy's name is that makes them, but it's a really big creeper and it's got a spinner on the back. And before that day, I would have said, ah, that's that's too much commotion. It's gonna not scare them, but they're not gonna eat it as good. Um I never would have thrown that. So it does help to go to Minnesota and catch them on that big baits, get some confidence down here, but I'm still not seeing the success that you'd think you would have throwing a big top water down here. You ever mess around with the, the big shad glide baits that a lot of the bass guys are going to now? No. I mean, I have bass fishing. Um, I had a client give me a couple and they were bigs, I think from Texas. And I looked them up. They're like 150, $200 glide baits, I believe. Yeah. And he gave them to me and I threw them on a musky rod and I threw them and I said, Matt, you can have these back. And he's like, why? I, said, I will never throw this thing. Like, what do you mean? I was like, it's too slow. It's a bass bait. 
Them bass love the big slow glide bait like that. I'm not saying a muskie won't eat it, but 90% of the lake muskies I've caught on a glide bait during the time of year that I would throw a shad style one, I'm going 100 miles an hour and yeah. I've stopped and then I'm going 100 miles an hour again. It's all about triggering them. And a bass is a lot different. Like if you go to a farm pond, like we all probably have, you've seen a bass sitting in a patch of weeds and you throw a sinker over there and you just shake it and you just let it sit. That bass will swim over and pick it up. I can't hardly think of any muskies that I've had do that. River muskies are different, but lake muskies, they don't eat stuff like that. It's it's extremely weird. Um, not very often, in my opinion. I can't get them to eat it like that. So that was one I was just curious. You always, you know, people make a big deal about those, and I was wasn't sure if those would ever make a crossover into musky stuff. But I I agree I, with you. It's so slow. I think they could. Um, there's a the KGB, <clears throat> which is extremely popular bass one. That one I'd like to get my hands on one of those, but they're just they're not. It's too. I can't justify paying 150 dollars for one right. of those glasses by a phantom that's going to glide just as good. No, it doesn't look as pretty aesthetically, but it works just as good as that. Those I could see being good um, because you can work, you can burn those things. But why spend $150 on that when I can pop out, pop it with a six inch phantom. So, so let, I don't know. I want to ask this because this is something like for those of us that haven't been to Minnesota. Yeah. Like what? So going up there, you've obviously spent a good bit of time up there now. Like what, explain like how much different it is in Minnesota versus like fishing here, like in our tri-state area, like PA, West Virginia, Ohio. Where, where is your light switch at in your room? Yeah. Go, go, go flip it off. When it's dark, that's Minnesota. When you turn it on, that's here. It's, it's drastically different. Um, they eat different. They, it is, there's just so much to it. It's, it's honestly, it's been a real big challenge to me for me going up there. I mean, I, I feel very confident like this year. I was very confident out there. But the first two years, the first year I was like, I hate this up here. This is horrible because I never even really fished weeds, which I know like you guys probably got some good weed beds and stuff like that. I've never really even fished weeds. All I've fished is open water, um, open water, shallow points that have nothing on it. And then a weed patch that's the size of a truck would be a weed bed for me. So now I go to in a little bit dirtier water. So now I go to Minnesota and all we're fishing is mile weed flats with cabbage and just weeds everywhere. And I'm like, wow, where do you even start? So it takes some time to learn about how those fish up there are as far as where they're sitting, why they're sitting there. That's the part that drives me nuts because like you hear about Minnesota and you hear that they're on the deep edges today, right? And then you get a cold front in September. They pull up there in five feet of water in the sand. Everyone talks about that, but I will say this, and it might just be like around Brad's house. That stuff doesn't happen as textbook as everyone acts, pretends that it is, ever. What's really weird that I find in Minnesota that I found this year is that you could find a pat, like here's an, a giant flat. You got this huge flat that's a circle. Through the middle of it is a stripe of cabbage. And then over here, on the left-hand side, there's pods of cabbage. And on the right-hand side, there's there's uh, sand. What's really weird to me is you could fish that stripe of cabbage in the middle, that perfect pretty cabbage, for a week straight, and you could catch fish in it every day. And then the conditions don't change at all, and you come back. Now they're over on the sand for some reason. 
Okay. Well, then you catch them on the sand for a day, and now they're all the way over in the patchy stuff. It just every day they, they seem to move around a lot more. Let me put it that way. Like, like I feel like our fish here, at least on Stonewall and around my neck of the woods, they're very structure oriented, like hard structure. Where I would say grass is a soft structure and that it's more vast. It's it's not like one tree sitting in 40 feet of water. There's obviously going to be a fish sitting on that. Up there, they're kind of spread out and it can change from day to day, but you need to be able to pick out the inconsistency. So same thing that I do when I'm in Stonewall and there's timber for a mile, I'm looking for the, the creek channel that where the creek channel swings or just where the creek channel is, or maybe there's a patch of pine trees. That's the same thing that I've learned to look for in Minnesota, except for in Minnesota, you look in the water, it's green. Well, now you're looking for cabbage or now you're looking for a patch of sand that's in the cabbage. Um, I, I've seen this year. I don't know what it was like. I'm not going to claim to know a ton about weeds, but I know enough about to catch fish out of it. There was, there was a day or two that there was all this pretty cabbage, real green, real clean cabbage, nothing on it. And then there was cabbage mixed in around it. The majority of it was this dirty cabbage. It had like, like moss growing on it. It looked awful, like pond scum. And then there was just a patch of cabbage that was just the prettiest green little patch of cabbage ever, like the size of your boat in the middle of all that junk. Every fish that we saw or caught was in that clean cabbage. Not in the junk stuff. And a week before that, we were catching them in the junk. But now they're all in that clean stuff. So it's it's basically the same thing as far as as finding those inconsistencies. But that's with fishing in, in general. I mean, if you have a if you have a, a bowl and it's got one big point sticking out of it, where are you going to fish? Where's the fish going to be? They're going to be on that point. So it's the same in that aspect. But the fish, they act differently to baits, in my opinion. Like here, I fish way faster, way more erratic. I'm, I'm ripping rubber, ripping uh, like a diving rise, like a dying dog, just stuff. I am fishing hard, like ripping as hard as I can. Up there, you can get away with. It'd be noon, flat, calm, sunny, hot, and you can throw a topwater in 20 feet of water and just slow roll the thing, the flap tail, and it's just back there barely tinging, and a 50-inch would come up and eat it. And it's like... What's been really hard for me is it's been really hard for me to learn that. It's like, okay, it's hot. These things are not going to come up. I got to get down deep and rip as fast as I can, and you might get bit. Well, up there, you can just do stuff like that, and just weird things like that happen, and they just eat baits completely different. How much um, have you gotten to learn on the boat with Brad as opposed to you being out there try having to figure it out yourself? And I say that, you know, you know, he's got he's got his guiding business and whatever. Yep. So I'm sure you can't just like be on his boat to learn from him every day. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I would give Brad a ton of credit. He's taught me a lot out there. Like the like the first time, well, exactly what I'm talking about. We go out to Miltona, which is his local lake where he started guiding and whatnot. Um, we get out there. And I'm throwing like a supermodel or something. We're, we're edge fishing. And he said, just reel it in slow. And I'm going slow. He goes, reel it slower. And I reel it slower. And he's like, reel it slower. Dude, I'm not, I can't go that slow. And I slow roll this thing and I wasn't seeing fish all day. And I, as the, he would tell me that in five casts later, I'd be back to going normal speed. And guiding's the same way you have, you fight that as well. But I was being Brad's client that day. And I'm like, I ain't going that slow. Fish don't need a freaking cowgirl going slower and crap in the middle of the day. There's no way. 
Well, guess who starts catching fish in the back? Brad. Okay. So now I'm like, okay, now I need to slow roll it. So I start slow rolling it. And then here comes one up on the figure eight. And it comes up, just both sides. I rip it around the corner, hanging on the corner like I would when I'm home. Fish swims off. And he's like, dude, you got to keep it slow. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, keep it six inches in front of its face the entire figure eight. I'm like, that makes no sense, but whatever. Next fish comes up. I do that. I go around the figure eight, slow motion, middle of the day, fish goes and bites that back hook. And I'm like, what? And I set back into it and I ended up losing it. But the right there was a humongous, uh, I don't even know what the word would be, but humongous eye opener for me about light wow, bulb like, moment. Yeah. These fish really are completely different than what I'm used to fishing for the last 10 years. Like this is insane. Like if you, if you would have did that at Stonewall and you were in my boat, I wouldn't have cussed at you, but I might have made some comments to you and been like, okay, don't ever do that again. You need to go mock 10 when you see that fish, especially if it's a big one. And I'm not saying you can't catch fish. Uh, everything I say, I'm not saying you can't do it, but I'm saying to catch a bunch of them, you don't want to do that. Um, so that's a huge thing up there. Those, those fish just eat. Um, a lot of people have asked me, well, which one's easier, West Virginia or Minnesota? Neither one of them's easier. Minnesota definitely has a lot more water, a lot more bigger fish. I mean, every lake you stop up there that says it has muskies, I guarantee you there's a 50 to a 55 swimming around that lake. There's not a one of them that doesn't have that. So that's a very good thing about up there. But they're not any dumber. When they want to be, they're dumber. But when they're eating, they're eating. When they're not, they're not. Here, when they're not eating, I can generally figure out something to get them to eat for whatever reason. Um. I'll say in my personal opinion, I'll probably get some slack off this from Northern listeners, but my personal opinion, a 50 incher here does seem to still be a little bit smarter than a 50 incher up there on the waters that I'm fishing. And the only reason I'm saying that is, is like, like a stonewall 50 incher. That is a very smart fish. That fish, you cannot screw up that figure eight. And, let, and if you do and it eats, you're a very lucky dude. And you got that fish at a perfect time. Up there, when that 50-incher comes falling in and he's going to eat, you can't do anything wrong, and that thing will eat it. They just swallow baits. When they want to move, they will eat. Um, it's a very, very odd thing, but I love it because you're getting 50-inchers to just swallow things. It, it's it's extremely cool because it's it's clear water, and you can see them coming in 10, 20, 30 feet out on the cast, burning a bucktail, and here comes a 50-incher at Mach 10 to come eat your bucktail boat side. It's, it's an absolute awesome thing with the clear water and being able to see those big fish interact with your bait. But I feel like if you got a 50 inch and you can tell that thing's fired up. And the only thing you would do is if you take your bait out of the water, it's probably not going to eat it. But if you keep it in the water and just move it, it's probably going to eat it. Like I had a, just a real quick story on this. A buddy of mine, Doug came up to fish with me um, this year in September and all he's known is what I've told him about Stonewall. Like, if you get one coming up, go as 100 miles an hour. So he's throwing a Cannonball Junior, and I didn't tell him all this. He's throwing a Cannonball Junior, and we're in like three feet of water and some cabbage. Here comes a fish coming, and he goes, oh, here comes one. And he's speeding up this Cannonball, and he, he gets so excited when he comes to the boat, he slings out like that, and the bait gets out of the water. And I said, put it back in the water. And he's like, oh, I screwed it up. And I said, put it back in the water. He puts it back in the water goes around one turn the fish is like five feet to the right it hears the cannonball comes a hundred miles an hour and just swallows the thing and i said doug you can't mess them up up here when they're when they're eating you can't hardly mess them up and they were a hundred percent eating that day he was crushing them 
I didn't have another Cannonball Jr. to throw in the back, unfortunately. But see, this it, is it's very cool that way. This is like to me. This is very interesting because number one, I don't really cast. So, like thinking about like making a trip out. You know, that's why I wanted to ask about this because Minnesota to me is like that's a destination trip. Like that's my that's on my bucket list. Like I feel like yeah. I need to get out there. And Donnie, like you've made trips out there. Ryan, have you been out there at all? I feel like you've been out there. Oh, that's one spot I haven't been yet. Okay. Has anybody else been out that way? No. I'm just like I don't know. It's just I've like been one out of there those three times, but you know, they don't eat when I go there. But you know, I'm not, I'm not, they, not quite sure the fisherman is chase either. So that could well, be something. Let me good. let me clarify something. When I said when they're eating and they're eating, that's not very often. It is a weird deal. You'll raise a bunch when they're not eating. Lazy oh, yeah, follows them. But when they're off, they are 100% off up there. And you can't really get them. Like I, like I said, when I'm here, if they're off, I can get them to move or generally get one to bite something. Up there, I struggle with it. When when they're off, it's they're off. You, you can't hardly get them to eat anything. You might get them to follow things, but you can't hardly get them to eat anything. That's a very big weird thing about Minnesota that, that really drives me nuts because – I can't stand fish not eating and when, and I can't, I a hundred percent can't stand when I can't get them to eat something. Like if I raise 20 fish in a day, I am pissed because I couldn't get them to bite. I should not be raising 20 fish. I should be raising 10 and hooking five and catching five or something like that. I get really mad when I'm raising a pile of fish. Cause I know when I'm here, I'm doing something wrong. I haven't figured out what needs to be done and that drives me nuts. But up there, there ain't nothing you can do about it. At least I ain't figured it out yet, but I got All next I all I can think of right now is Napoleon Dynamite and saying, eat your food, Tina. Oh, I've said it. Trust me. I've said it multiple times up there. I, I think it's interesting that what Chase said there, too. Like, that was one of the the age-old discussions on this podcast. Like, you know, do you do you see 20 fish, and are you happy with that? Or are you just miserable because they didn't eat? Like, miserable. That's a good perspective. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's days when you're going to get a lot of follow-ups. But if you're moving that many fish, you need to change something. You need to change your cadence. You need to change your bait. You need to do something different to get those fish to eat. I, I tell people all the time, I don't care to raise a fish. I'd rather go out and hook two than raise 30 fish. I do not want to see that many fish because it literally, it drives me nuts because I know I'm doing something wrong in my head and I don't know what I'm doing wrong because I keep doing the same thing. So I got to figure it out. And that's just a struggle that I have when it comes to, fishing waters that have tons of fish and you do end up having a lot of follows it, it drives me nuts okay so you know you know how we all get in our ways in certain regions like you're saying in, at stonewall you you know certain tactics are going to work there um but we all get in our ways i mean those guys yeah. in pa they're trolling five miles an hour do i have confidence trolling five miles an hour here not as much but i guarantee you stick with it it's going to happen yeah. what's something that you you, one of those tactics you use in West Virginia, West Virginia that has worked up in Minnesota for you? Uh, probably the easiest one is, is the dying dog, 100%. Um, dying dog in shallow water, open water, edge fishing, using a dying dog, ripping it hard and fast with the slack line. Um, the slack line technique that I've made i don't i won't say i made it but that i've dialed in myself um i feel like i've mastered it in my own way of what i wanted to do and doing that describe said technique a little bit 
Well, you can go watch Mayhem's 10,000 Cast. Okay, there you go. <laughs> plug, plug away. I, I don't know which episode. It was the, it was the last year's Ohio episode. And uh, yeah, it was, it was one of the first episodes. I don't remember which one it was. Okay, cool. No, I definitely check that out. I, I explained it in there. Um, after posting that videos, I had a lot of people, because I call it the slack line, slack line ripping it. That's not really a slack line. Like I, was, I had guys send me videos of them trying to do it and they've got like eight feet of slack out and they're just going like this on slack. I'm like, no, you're not moving the bait. You want to throw it out, rod tip it to bait, rip it. And instead of reeling all the way up to where you're tight with it again, you reel up about halfway. So there's just that little bit of slack in your line. And when you pop it, you'll hear it. You'll hear the, the you like, you'll hear the water go like that. So Next time you're out in the water, if you have a dying dog, stick it in the water, put your rod tip in the water, and just pull it on a straight line and stop it. That dying dog goes like this. Okay. Well, I know people can't see that. Your dying dog goes uh, straight, and it doesn't really dive down. If you give it a hard pop on, like, a slack line, that dying dog will go forward, and then when it stops, that head will dig down, and it will literally turn vertical. And two reasons that's good. One, that triggers more fish biggest reason number two you will not lose as many fish i've had tons of people reach out to me and like dude i bought a dying dog because i've seen it but i lose so many fish on it what can i do what kind of hooks do you put on it and you can upgrade hooks i've put seven knots on the front and then added like double split rings on the back for the back hook problem you run in with that is one your front hooks will get tangled on your leader a lot more your back hook will cut through your tail actually if you throw them enough like like i do religiously you're going to cut through that tail quick. So what I do now is I just tell everybody to do that slack line pop. So when you do that and that bait turns vertical, instead of the fish T-boning it from the side or from under it, now they come up from directly under the bait like Jaws would and swallow it. And when they eat that, they got both treble hooks down the gullet and you set and you've got that fish. So you will get way more, a way better hookup percentage ratio doing it, working that bait like that. Um, and it's not just, it's not just with the dying dog. I mean, it's with any rubber bait I'm throwing. I I'm working it like that because I want that head to go like this, go completely vertical in the water column. And I think that's why I like the, the chaos weight thing is becoming such a popular thing. That's why I originally used them or I didn't really originally use them for that. I originally used them to get my bait deeper and work it faster, not 30 feet deep. I'm still fishing in 15 foot of water. I just want my bait to go hundred miles an hour, 15 feet down rather than if you didn't have a weight on it and you go hundred miles an hour, if you let it sink to the bottom, you go hundred miles an hour, your bait's back up to five feet easily. If you're ripping it really hard. So you put that weight on it, it keeps that bait down there and digging. But if you add the slack line to it, now your bait is down there doing the same thing, but you're getting a lot more action out of your bait. And it's not just dying dogs, it's dying dogs, mag dogs, any rubber bait you want to throw. If you work it like that, I promise you, you'll get more bites and you will catch more of those fish um, that bite that thing. And that, that's something a lot of people, I feel like a lot of musky fishermen, and, and the, this is exactly what I'm talking about, like the bass thing. I feel like in the musky industry, we're all so... Oh, the muskie's a 10,000 cast fish. It's it's an alien. It's not even a fish. You can't even hardly catch them. They're, they're so insane. They're not even fish. We overthink all this. Bass guys, they know what's going on. Yeah, a bass bites bait a lot easier and a lot more often than a muskie will. But we're not doing the little things 
to catch more fish that I'm talking about. I'm, we're not, yeah, we're sharpening hooks. whoop de doo Guess what? I don't sharpen hooks hardly ever, but I will do that, that, that technique because it will, those fish will, they have to eat it like that. They have to get all those treble hooks in their mouth if you work it like that. And you will, you will lose way less fish working rubber in that way. Um, you get more action, you catch more fish and it, it, it puts a lot more fish in my boat because I'm, I'm, I'm working a bait like that. My clients are working a bait like that. It's just stuff that musky fishermen, they, I feel like we all go in depth and really think, Oh, I need this bait, this secret bait. But what guys are not doing is they're not figuring out how to catch more fish on that bait by doing something different or learning how to make it where you are going to catch the fish that eat that thing. They all just, we all just buy more baits and hope that that one's better than the other, which I'm guilty of that as well. But when I get a bait, I really pay attention to that thing, figure out how to work it perfectly, figure out how, like on a glide bait, figure out how to pull it away from them enough to where they're like nipping at it. If I get a fish up on a glide bait going hundred miles an hour, it gets up there nipping at it. I don't let it, I don't stop it and just let it nip it. If, if I get one like swipe at it and it gets back on it, I'm going to go a hundred miles an hour for 20 feet. And then I'm going to pause it perfectly. And when I do that, that fish is so pissed that bait just went that far away from it. He's going to come and swallow that bait. Now he didn't nip it like he would have, if I stopped it, he swallowed it. I've done that on glide baits. I've done it on the figure eight with bucktails and, and, and bulldogs. And that just comes with the experience of, of reading a fish. If you read a fish and you can tell this thing's probably going to eat, but he's kind of like, Hey, I don't really know. I'm just going to nip it, pull that bait away from it. Don't let him have it. Just keep it away from it as long as you can. And then give him the perfect opportunity to eat that thing. And when they eat it that second time, nine times out of 10, they're swallowing it. It's insane. Like if they nip it and you hook them and then you pull it away from them and get them fired up again, that, that second time they will swallow it almost always. I got a it's question. A lore, that's a lore tease. You're just, yeah. a te- you're just, a, it's edging a fish. Exactly. So you get him, <laughs> you get him ready. He's not ready and he's like, Oh, and then you pull it away from him and he's like, damn it. And then you get him back up again. And then that time he, he unloads. Get him revved up. You messed up my whole uh, lure slot plan. Cause that I have a dying dog sitting in there that I can't wait to unload, but maybe I should hold on to it. You should, you should give it a chance. Um, no, you should bring it to the lure slot. Not anymore. I want to, I want to ask him, I want to ask about reading fish. Go ahead. Like you, you talked about experience time on the water there. Like that's important, but you've got like, we've got all these new guys getting into the sport of musky fishing. Right. And like, I know from my personal experience, like casting, you could go like, years without catching a fish like if you have no idea what you're doing no idea where to go like what's what's a piece of advice for somebody that's getting into the sport like on how to read a fish like i don't know it just seems like you kind of just know what to do over time like after you've seen enough fish but you do but it takes a long time because it's musky fishing um it's it's a hard question for me to answer because Hold on, my cat's getting up on me. It's a hard question for me to answer because um, it depends on where you're at, right? Um, here's what I would say. If you're on a body of water that is completely full of bait, the fish do not have to eat your bait whatsoever. They, they have so much food there that they don't ever have to eat again. They don't ever have to eat a crankbait again or a dying dog or a rubber or whatever. 
on that particular body of water, what I'm going to start out with is I'm going to rip baits as hard as I can. On the figure eight, I'm going to go fast. If you're on a body of water where there's not much bait, um, they are going to be more opportunistic. So then I would fish a little slower. I would give them a lot more chances to just get an easy meal. And like Minnesota is more so on that spectrum of you give them a little bit more of an easier meal compared to a lot of these shad based lakes in the South. You need to go fast. You need to pull it away from them, get them fired up because they don't have to eat that bait. They do not have to eat it. They, they got a thousand shads going around. They got a thousand crappie within a hundred feet of their head at any given moment. They don't need to eat it. So I typically, when I'm on a body of water that has a ton of bait, um, I'm going to start off going really fast. And if I do raise one, I'm going to keep it going fast. Don't slow down because that fish, he, you've got him, his, his predator instinct is why he's at your boat right now. It's not because he's hungry. I can promise you that. So you need to keep that going and just trigger that fish. 100% trigger it. You're not feeding them, you're triggering them. But when you're on a body of water um, that doesn't have a lot of bait, I would try more so of the feeding thing. So give them more opportunities, work the baits a little slower. On the figure eight, go a little slower, hanging on the corner just a half a second longer than you normally would. And and reading a fish is is a huge thing. That's a hard thing to uh, to – you can't really teach it. I mean, you can tell someone what to do, but when they see a fish – are they going to execute it perfectly? Probably not. So reading the fish, if that fish is two inches behind your bait when it comes in, just say a bucktail. If it comes in on a bucktail and it's two inches behind your bait and you're burning it, keep burning it. Do not slow down. If anything, go faster, 100%. As wide as you can. And on the, on the a lot of guys talk about hanging the bucktail on, on, the, uh, on the corner. Hanging a bucktail works, 100%. I would say more so in these southern lakes that I fish, you don't want to hang it there too long. Like you don't want to hang it towards the blades are almost stuttering. You want it to just a hair slower out there. And then if that fish is coming to head it off, then you get ready to set that hook. Cause it's going to come eat it. But a lot of times I won't even slow down on the corners on, on a lot of the waters that I'm fishing here in West Virginia, I will still go a hundred miles an hour in that corner as fast as I can. And I've had fish come up, like they're about ready to eat it. And if you would have stopped it, that fish, probably would have just kept swimming like they look like they're about to eat it but they're not so i just keep going 100 miles an hour and they're going to come and if they're going to eat they will chase that thing down and get it no matter how fast you're going the problem with this is is by saying this stuff is like a guy's gonna go out and raise a fish tomorrow and he's gonna go 100 miles an hour so swim off and he's gonna think i don't know what i'm talking about the problem is, is you, every fish is a different fish. They're all individual. You got to look at their body language to figure out what to do at that time. That's the part that comes with time on the water. So it, it's hard to explain it, but that's just what I would do on a low, low forage lake, work a little slower, give them more opportunities. High forage lake, go fast, trigger that fish. Don't feed them, trigger them. That's a, I mean, that's a heck of an answer, right? Listen, like I don't cast and I, I still, you guys know, like anybody that's fished with me knows I get ramped up real easy. Like I yeah. see a fish and I'm like, my first instinct is there's a fish. And then I end up pulling my bait out of the water. You know, it's yeah. like, I do all the stupid stuff everybody else does, but you know, like there's certain in, like applications to where I've, I feel like I'm starting to learn how to read fish like this time of year, you know, it's, yeah. I've gotten really good, especially at my feet. Like when I'm, I'm, I'm casting into creeks and stuff, but 
I don't know. It's just, I feel like that's such a, an interesting thing, like talking about reading fish. Cause for those of us that troll, we don't really get to see that fish till that clicker goes off. You know what I mean? Like it's a little different. Yeah. Yes. Need, yeah. And, well, that kind of brings us to another thing that we wanted to talk about. Like, okay. When I think of reading a fish, I'm thinking I'm watching that fish. I'm thinking fish that I'm seeing with my eyes as I'm, you know, in a figure eight, whatever you see a fish, follow from a far away lazy follow that's the interaction that i get from fish i don't use live scope you know so are when are you i know you you use live scope i know it's something that you use in your boat but it's not something that you uh, you know I, i'll let you to 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 get yeah. into that but how much are you using electronics to read fish like ryan's asking about um all that that i just talked about is all figure eight stuff it can Both be sides. a Applied to live scope as well. Um, live scope, which I know everyone knows what live scope is by this point. It's an amazing tool to read the fish. So guys that are good at figure eating fish and getting them to eat, when they go to live scope, they're going to be good at live scoping. Um, it's basically the same thing. It just depends, depends on the day, depends on the water that you're fishing, on what you need to do on that cast when you're looking at that fish. Um, how I use it anymore I will full heartedly admit when I first got it, I was what everyone talks about and says is not fishing and all that stuff. And I will agree and disagree at the same time. Cause what I, where I would go with this is, is just turning that pole and not making a cast all day until you see a fish, you throw to it, you catch it. Okay. It looks easy. It can be easy. Um, but not everybody can cast that fish and give them to bite. You know what I mean? So there are guys that's doing that and they have all the right in the world to do that. I did it for like two years and I thought that's how everybody was using live scope in the musk industry when I was doing it. So I didn't really hide it at all. And I was doing it. And then I realized that for whatever reason, everyone in the musk industry that I knew in the Southern areas, um, they weren't sharpshooting, so to speak. They were just using it for jigging. Everyone just said, oh, I watched my Bondi on it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I'm like, oh, so when you see one out there at 70 feet, you don't chuck a bait over there and rip it past it and catch it? And they didn't. And once I realized no one else was doing it, I got a little bit more secretive of it. Um, but, I, but I'll but i be completely flat out honest. I got to a point to where I thought, okay, this this really is stupid. Like, I don't even like fishing right now. This I don't even want to go out tomorrow. I could probably go out tomorrow and catch two to five fish tomorrow live scoping or just not do it and go to the river and don't have a Garmin or anything on my boat and catch two little ones. And I got to that point to where I'm like, I don't even want to fish anymore because of this, because of how I was fishing. I'm not saying anything bad about guys that's doing that to this day. Have at her, go ahead. I decided that I'm not doing that anymore. Now, granted, if I'm fishing, so what, what I do now is just say I'm going down a bank. If I'm going down that bank, I'm throwing a bait just like everyone else does. And then when I got my live scope pointed 45 forward, because generally if I've got someone in front of the boat, a client or a friend, I'm watching their bait come in to make sure that they get a follow or not. I can tell them, which can be bad and can be good. A lot of guys will freak out. Some guys will be prepared and actually catch the fish. But, um, but if I see a fish on that and I will stop the boat, have them throw to it once or twice, I can tell if I, the only instance where I'm throwing a bait to a, a bait or multiple baits to a fish 
is if I know for a fact that fish is not seeing that. If it's not interacting with my with my baits that I'm throwing to it, I will make multiple throws. But as soon as that fish notices my bait or he moves where I can tell, okay, he felt it or seen it, something, and he did not eat it, I'm moving on. Um, but if he followed it in or something, he swims back off and you're throwing to it again, I don't agree with that. But like I said, if you want to do it, go ahead, no problem. Um, so nowadays, it's just on my boat to watch for follows. Yes, I will still scope them if they're sitting there and the client needs to catch fish or I want to catch fish. I will 100% scope that fish, but I'm not going to chase it around. I'm not just going to sit there and work that pole all day for my clients or myself. Um, I won't do it because I've learned that I don't need to do it. Um, the funny thing about live scope for me is everybody hates on it and some guys love it and whatnot. It's just another tool in the boat. I can literally do exactly the same thing I do with live scope that I, with side imaging that I can with live scope. Um, when I did that guiding in Ohio for the first time up there on West branch, I went up there and it was, it was insane. The fish that I was catching uh, me and my clients, not just me. And I will say this, I would say 75% of those fish were marked on side imaging and caught using side imaging. 25% of them were used live scope. And there's probably a percentage in there in the middle that was used both. I marked on side imaging, cast to it a couple times, never moved, then turned a live scope over there and realized we weren't getting to it. So it's all about understanding your electronics, but you can do the same thing that you can with live scope. You can do it with side imaging. It's much harder. takes a lot more time to figure that out. Um, you're not going to be as precise, 100%. You're not going to be as precise, but you can do it um, with side imaging. And... Uh, I'm kind of rambling here and losing my train of thought. Well, no, I mean, that's, I don't have any, oh, I have very limited experience with the live scope and really only in a trolling sense. Um, so I, I can't say from any type of experience, you know, what it's like to cast or sharpshoot or anything like that. I mean, you definitely have, have heard people talking about sharpshooting in a more derogatory manner. Of know? course. Yep. And, 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 it, and, and the problem I have with that, is the, the problem nowadays we all know this everybody's got a social media they all want to speak their opinion on social media right they want to see like if i post a picture of a 50 incher and i got a garmin in the back back of my boat my garmin may not even been in the water and i cut that thing someone's going to say oh chase he's just a live scoper and i'm not i'm not just saying me i mean this happens to a lot of people um it's not good to do that because one you don't know and then if you get on there and type and say something then no one cares about your opinion. Obviously, it ticks certain people off. But the problem I have with it is, is it's not going away. And honestly, I think it's a very good thing for the younger generation because I walk around and when you go to Walmart and you see 10-year-old kids and under, what do they got in their hand? An iPad, 90% of them. And I really feel like all these kids are growing up on iPads, whatever, it's fine. Those kids are, it's going to have, we're going to have a hard time getting those kids into fishing because they've grown up with so much technology more than we did. Um, it's going to be hard to get them to go out there and just throw a bait out in the middle of the lake and they don't know what the heck's going on. So if you have live scope for a kid, I think it's a great thing for the sport of fishing and musky fishing because it's going to be something that they can relate to. They're looking at a screen for eight hours a day and then dad takes some fishing. They're going to be like, ah, I don't want to go fishing, I, whatever. Now they've got a screen. Oh, this is pretty cool. There, there's a fish right there. And then he throws over and he catches it. That kid is going to learn how to use live scope better than a lot of us. 
I mean, something else is probably going to come and I'm going to be outdated for that stuff. Um, there's, there's no question in the world that younger people pick up on live scope a lot quicker than older guys on hundred percent. And it's just because we grew up with more technology, but I see a problem in the future thinking about the young kids is I'm afraid that if, if they don't have live scope, not very many of them going to get into fishing. It's going to be very few guys. And I will say this, if I ever have a son or a girl, hopefully a son, they are not getting a live scope. <laughs> They're not getting a live scope for a long time. They're going to fish in the John boat with a hand crank trolling motor, just like dad did. And mm-hmm. they're going to upgrade their electronics every now and then until they work their way up to live scope. Start them out <laughs> with the, the lower Jensen uh, yes. weight over the side speedometer. See, this is, yeah. this is, this is the thing though. Like technology has come a long way in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And it's not just, in the fishing community like we focus on electronics on the water like we're yeah. all thinking about electronics but i mean think about the dependency on your cell phone you know how much different it is now than it was 20 years ago exactly like, it's everything it's our entire lives are electronic you know a lot look of at, what we look do. at people backing up a car with a backup camera you know, i mean yeah. most people now you give them one without one they're... they don't know how to back up yeah. Know how to parallel park. yeah mirror what are you talking about it's Here, one thought I have with it though, like where you're going with that, like when kids are growing up, if, if it really does get to where I think it could go, where 90% of the fishing community is all they know is live scope. If they're not seeing a fish and can cast to it and it bites, they're not going to catch them. So one thing very good about the older guys that absolutely hate live scope, you guys, not you guys, but the older guys are going to be able to catch more fish than the kids live scoping because it's going to come to a time where the fish that that uh, are getting scoped every day, the fish that are out in the open water, the easy pickings, they're going to go sit in structure. They're going to sit deep in a lay down. They're going to sit deep in weeds and st- stuff like that. And them kids are never going to go up around a bank and throw in that tree without ever knowing anything's there. And I do see that's coming because I already see it with certain guys that, uh, that do live scope. Um, I see it. They used to fish timber and whatnot and, if they can't go catch them live scoping now, they're done. They ain't catching them. Mm-hmm. So that's where, like where I was talking about where I felt like I wasn't fishing and I needed to change something. Something that was happening was the lake that I was on is completely full of structures. So if I wasn't seeing them in the trees or whatnot, I usually didn't catch them. Well, muskies will go to the bottom and they'll sit flat on the bottom. You will not mark them on anything. You just need to fish. So I was missing out on a lot of fish that I would not have caught, um, not that I would not have caught if I was sitting there staring at a screen. So I realized that quick, especially with guiding, when you've got guys throwing baits all day um, and they just pop one that was behind the boat that I should have marked on my live scope, but I didn't. I should have marked on my side imaging, but I didn't. He caught it right there. Where'd that fish come from? And it makes you wonder, like, maybe I look at these screens too much. So where I'm at now is I've kind of got a good balance, I feel, in my boat of just normal fishing, but also utilizing the the screens as much as I possibly can without without hurting my performance without using the screen. Um, and I, I think that's the best way to do it. If you really want to catch fish consistently every day, if you want to catch fish every day, you need to fish somewhere like that, some way of like that. You can't look at a live scope screen every single day and catch a fish. I don't care who you are, where you're at you're going to have some blank days looking at a screen every single day. And you're going to have a lot of blank days not having any screens and not using them at all and just throwing out in the middle of nothing too. 
So you need to find a good balance. And I think that's the best way to be consistent on the water. Cause that's what I'm always, when I was guiding and still guide is I'm trying to find the most consistent way to catch fish in a boat. I don't want today, this guy to catch 12. If he does, I'd be ecstatic, but I'd rather have Monday through Friday catching two to three fish rather than having Monday and Tuesday, we caught 10 and the rest of the week, all those guys didn't catch a fish because I'm looking at a screen all day. I'm not going to do that. So what I've found is to be, well, like I'm talking about to be the most consistent throughout any weather pattern, any mood that the muskies might be in any structure that they might be in. Um, that's what I found to be the best, best way to attack fishing. How much of a difference do you see in the way you use live scope in West Virginia as opposed to in, in Minnesota? Uh, Minnesota, the only time that we're, the live scope's even in the water is if we are fishing open water or an edge. Um, if it's a lake, really, I ain't really been on very many lakes that you're in 15 foot of water and there's not weeds. So I can't really speak on that, but open water for sure um edge fishing for sure a lot of times sometimes you'll see them on live scopes sitting in the edge but a lot of times you won't they're buried in the weeds um more often than not they're buried but what's good about when they're buried in the weeds and those deep weed edges is those fish usually bite the ones that's just kind of cruising around on top of the weeds or right off the edge those ones generally don't bite and i don't know if that's how it's always been or if that's the reason of live scope because the fish that are up swimming around they're getting scoped then they're like oh i ain't eating that that's weird but if they're buried in a weed honestly what i think it more so is is like it's the same thing here at stonewall when there's a fish in a in a lay down and he's sitting on top of the lay down or suspended off the lay down generally that fish doesn't bite but if there's one in the heart of that lay down i can generally get to bite and it's the same thing with minnesota and what i think that is is those muskies when they're eating and they have structure they're going to get buried in that structure and hide and when something comes by, they're going to eat it. So they're, they're in a hunting mode is what I would say. This is all hypothesis, but this is what I'm thinking. They're in a hunting mode. And if they're just suspended up, they're like, ah, I ain't really hungry right now. Yeah, there's bluegills here, but I'm not going to eat them right now. I'm going to keep swimming for a little bit. That's uh, an interesting uh, take on it. Honestly, yeah. that's a little bit counterintuitive to what I, you know, you, you kind of think, oh, you see a fish up and around. Those fish are active. That fish wants to eat. No. Uh, you know. Where is I used there? To you know, camouflaged and yeah. And I, I know where you're going to that. Like you see one up suspended and whatnot. Now, like this time you're in the colder months in the South when they're suspended on bait, that's a different story, but like in April. So for whatever reason, I've noticed this is before live scope. Um, and then with live scope, I've seen a lot more for whatever reason, like April, like pre-spawn fishing, you know where the biggest fish I see in the lake is they're in 45 feet of water, five feet down swimming three miles an hour. Those fish never eat. I've never, ever been able to get one of those fish to eat. And I don't know what it is. I think they're, I, I, I think I know what it is. I think they're, that fish are just, okay, I need to spawn. Wow, I'm late. I need to take off. So they take off in the river channel and they are flying and they're going to run to that, to wherever they're going to spawn and just spawn, I'm guessing. But those fish very rarely eat. So if they're not suspended on bait and they're just up swimming around, that's a very hard fish to catch casting. Trolling, though, I've got some fish to eat doing that, that are up, cruising around. They won't eat casting, but for whatever reason, I can get them to eat a crankbait. I don't know why that is. Uh, Minnesota, I haven't played with that enough, but for sure in Minnesota, if you see one sitting on a ball of bait, that one's going to probably eat. But 
I don't know. It's it's weird. These these fish are weird. Like I said earlier, we all think about muskies and think they're aliens and whatnot. They are, but they aren't. They're still simple. It just guys don't think too in depth on why that fish is is doing that. Like why would that fish be swimming? They're supposed to be in five feet of water and less. Why is it out in forty five feet of water swimming three and a half miles an hour? That doesn't make any sense. Um, well, what I've learned is like fish like that. I don't even really target them anymore because it's not it ain't worth the time. I mean, I've never been able to get in a bite. I think I've caught a couple of them that were trolling. I think I've caught a couple of them that were doing that. Were they? I don't know. I have no idea. That was before live scope and all electronics. So what, I'm, this is kind of a general, cause we we've talked about live scope a little bit on here. Not, yeah. not at length. I, I, I miss the, the Alex McLean episode and I, you know, just like thinking through this, like what, Chase, you mentioned about people liking to share their opinion on social media. Like my question to everybody is why do we feel like live scope is such a, like a big deal, like enough to where people get so heated that they feel like they have to argue about it. Is it, is it conservation side where they think it's an issue with the fish? Is it, is it jealousy? Cause they can't, you know, put it on, like, I can't afford, I'm not going to put it on my boat cause I can't afford it right now. Right. You know, um, but what, what is it about live scope that gets everybody so fired up? Well, I'm glad you went back to that. And the opinion thing, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm, that's not going to work anyways, but even if I did say that, but there is a problem with live scope. And I think we talked about it more. So like, Man's Styles Cast last year, we tried keeping it off of the... We didn't really want to talk about it. We didn't really want to show it. Um, we used it a couple times throughout the season. Like, I'm telling you how this is how we fished. We did that filming as well. Um, we kept it off there because it was such a controversial topic. And I think it's controversial in one instance about conservation, like you're saying. And then the other instance is jealousy or the guy buys it and he still is not catching any fish. So he's mad. Um, those guys, whatever they they need to learn what's going on. The conservation stuff, there is a problem with it. Um, and that is another thing that I wanted to talk about. Really another reason why I want to talk about live scope tonight is no one, I mean, I didn't listen to that Alex one, but I'm sure someone's done it, but guys need to understand that catching a, like in Minnesota, it's a humongous problem. Like it, it is a big problem up there. Um, those fish and that clear water, they sit deep. And me and Brad have went back and forth about this for three years now, whether or not we need to start talking about it. And the problem is, is we didn't want to talk about it because guys that will take advantage of it and kill fish may not have knew about it until we said something about it. So we didn't want to say anything about it. But I think it's to the point now everybody kind of knows what's going on. Those fish are too deep. So just say in Minnesota, open water fish in June and July, you really shouldn't be seeing any dead fish. You will see a lot of dead fish in certain places that are getting scoped hard. And the reason is, is because these fish are sitting 20 to, I've seen them as deep as 60 foot down up there. So they're 20 to 60 feet down the water column. And those guys are throwing baits to them and they're catching them. The problem is, is they get full of air and they can't take off. And I'm, I will hundred percent say I've had that happen to me and some fish have swam off but 90% of them will not swim off. Um, and you can't burp them. I've, I mean, I've burped them, but I've burped them to the point where I think they just sunk to the bottom and maybe died. I have no idea. I'll be completely transparent on all that stuff. Um, 
as far as fizzing them, like with a fizz needle, I don't know. I, I don't know where you do it. I've tried talking to the DNR here about it, which we all know how the DNR is. It's wishy-washy about anything, if they actually know anything or not. So I didn't get any, anywhere with that, so I don't know. But we do not cast at any fish that's any deeper than like 15. If, it, if it's 15 feet, we'll cast that. If it's any deeper than that, we will not screw with that fish. And I'll tell you this, open water fishing, and if you fish like that, you're not going to catch a ton of fish. It depends on the waters that we are fishing. Most of the fish are all 20 to 25 feet deep, no matter what. And I don't know why they like it that deep, but they do. So the open water fishing, like this year, um, like last year we did it a lot and we struggled trying to film because we're driving around and all, all the fish are in the open water, but they're all too deep to fish. Like we're seeing 50 fish a day, but we're only getting to cast on like two of them. Um, it's tough because it's double-edged sword because you can cast them. We can make a hell of a freaking show because we'll have two fifties and a 45, but we killed all of them. So we don't do that obviously. And the problem is there's a lot of guys out there that want that Facebook post. They want that 50 incher to post on Facebook and be a hero. When in reality, that fish is 35 feet deep and he caught it and that thing's dead. I mean, it's, there's a lot of that going on in Minnesota. Um, and it's not good. It really isn't. And the only thing, and I don't think it's ever going to change, but guys have got to be responsible with this thing. It's a tool that can be used for great days on the water, making people happy, but it can also really hurt some fishing. Um, and, it, and I think it will hurt some fishing if people don't start really figuring out how to, to not to control themselves. They can't control themselves in the water when it comes to that. And the same problem. So it's, it's down here too. It's not just in Minnesota. Down here, our problem is not so much deep fish, but summertime. And I kind of regret saying this, but in Stonewall, you go over and you can live scope right now and you'll see a bunch of fish and, on balls of shad and open water and whatnot. But pretty much every other time of year that's not right now in the cold months, you're scoping, you're really not going to see that many fish in the trees and whatnot or suspended and stuff like that. But if you go over there and August when the water temp's 85 you pull into those timbered coves and you look in those trees there's going to be fish sitting in those trees all over the place and they will probably eat um the problem is, is the water's hot now so now you're you're playing with the game is it going to die or not because the water's 85 they did that study in west virginia that was the biggest waste of time ever um that's so, a whole so, yeah i wanted to ask you about that kind of yeah what, what 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 ended up being the kind of end result of that they came out and said that the mortality of a muskie 12 months a year is 10 percent. the mortality of a muskie in the summer months is 10 percent. that's what they said so they said there's no difference in the fishing in the summertime i can promise you this that is not at all correct um they 100 not all of them die i helped them a ton with that i mean like a lot. I helped them every single weekend. We went out, we tracked fish, and I caught them scoping because that was when I was sharpshooting all the time. Um, we caught a lot of them. I killed quite a few of them. And for whatever reason, the ones that died never made it to the study. And I don't know why. Um, it's very, very, it has made me very angry after they said all that because um, they, I know for a fact they did not count multiple fish that died. They counted the ones they wanted to count. I can tell you that though. Like I caught one that was hooked deep. I've caught a pile of fish. It was on that L tail. And when I was catching them first thing on that, almost every one of them, that bait was in the throat. I never killed a single fish. And this fish was hooked down deep. It was one hook. It wasn't in the tongue. 
is in the side of the mouth over here. I pull that hook out. It's unhooked. It's fine. Not bleeding at all. Pick it up, put it in the water. Thing swims off, goes down. Like 20 minutes later, it's floating. Bar temps like 82 degrees. It was the first fish caught in that study. I don't know if that, I don't know. I know this one didn't get counted. It was the first fish caught in the hot water period in that study. It did not get counted because they said it was a deep hooked fish. Okay. Do you not think they get deep hooked in 60 degree water a month ago and swim off fine? Right. That, I mean, that's the problem I have with it. It's, it's, there's too many. So what, they were, they were, okay. So they were trying to eliminate, like they didn't want the hooking to be the reason for the death. They wanted to make sure that it was the, trying to eliminate that variable. Okay. I mean, I guess for a scientific I, study, I guess, you know, I can, I can understand the theory there, but yeah, I, without I, having somebody there that can kind of make that call, don't you have to rely on the angler and the angler's input, you know? Yeah, and I mean, isn't that like the whole, that's the whole thing with the hot water fishing, right? I mean, it's not saying that necessarily every fish is going to die, but no. <clears throat> that's kind of one of the main differences. You can get away with a lot more when the water's not 80 degrees. Like, you know, a deep hook fish might be fine if it's 60 degree water temp, but if it's 85 degrees and you got to keep that fish out a little longer and, and mess with that hook and that kind of stuff. Right. Like, that can be the difference between life and death. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand there's, there's scientific study. And the problem with me is I'm complete opposite of a scientific dude. I'm very common sense driven. And I got to the point with that, with the, the guy that was tracking them and doing the study. When I, he was in my boat all the time, every weekend, because we were fishing together. I got to the point with him. I'm like, Peter, let me ask you this. And he's like, what? And I said, if delayed mortality wasn't a thing, why would we be doing a study on it? And he couldn't answer me. I mean, think about that. If delayed mortality was was never a thing, why would we ever do a study on delayed mortality? If we already have kind of an idea that it's happening, that means it's obviously happening. And maybe I, mean, I, I think, think I it get wrong. that. I mean, I get that. But I, I mean, I think you we have how many times in the musky world do we have anecdotal evidence like talk about the 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 pouring soda pop on on the the fish's gills yeah. that they're yeah. bleeding like that's that's anecdotal like that is there's no scientific science behind that like uh, so the only way to prove something like that would be try a study and yeah. you know but we see how anytime you try a study like that it, i mean it's there's there are so many variables i mean i, I don't know and musky fishing is such a small world yeah. i don't know man i well, that, that was the next thing that I brought up to him. I'm like, Peter, I'm going to help this study because I know they're dying and I want to prove that they're dying. I'm like, but the problem is there's so many variables that go into this. And and like when you come out with it, I told him, I'm like, when you come out with this study, everyone's going to think this study on Stonewall saying their delayed mortality is not a thing. They're going to take that to Minnesota. They're going to take that to Ohio. They're going to take it to everywhere. The problem is all these bodies of water are completely different. So one thing that's very interesting about Stonewall and the hot water study that I learned, because I never fished out there in the summertime until this, um, the water was hot, 80 degrees. The oxygen levels throughout the entire summer on the surface were 100% oxygen levels, the same as they would be in May. I don't know if Stonewall is rare to be like that or what the deal was there. He didn't know either. There's not much flow in Stonewall as you would think it would be by its shape, but there's not. Um, and then you could catch those fish during that study. I could catch them good, 
through this whole period of when eight feet down still 65 degrees or whatnot. But when it got to the point where there was dissolved oxygen deeper, not on the surface, but deeper, and like the thermoclines at 12 feet, just say it's at 12 feet, the fish are laying at 12 feet, they're still in like 75 degree water temps. When it got like that, that's the fish that probably will die if you catch them. The problem was, is those fish are really hard to catch when they were like that. So the first year, I didn't really catch a ton of them that were in that in that period. But when I did, those couple that I did, and it was like maybe two or three fish, those fish died. All of them did. Okay. But all the ones through the summer, the majority of them that we caught were when they were still biting. And it really wasn't bad. Yeah, it was 80 degree water, but it wasn't terrible. And the problem where I really messed up and where I really regret is the first year when I did it, I caught them all, I unhooked them all, I handled them all, and I released them all. Whereas, like, I caught it. I remember I got a 50-incher with him. We were tracking it, caught it. I pick it up for a picture quick, and I put it back in the water. I didn't bump it or anything. Who in their right mind would have never bumped it? So it, that one should have been exiled from the, the, the uh, study immediately. Because no one would ever catch a 50-incher and not measure it. The only reason I didn't measure it is because we already knew how long it was because he measured it two months ago. So what, what was the what were the results tracking in the sense that were you were these fish being tracked afterwards for a period of time to see, okay, yeah, they, they're gonna live for two weeks or like when did it were they tagged? So the only way they knew if they died was one if they floated, which most of them didn't. Um, or two, if the tag stayed in one spot for a long time, like, I don't remember what this specific time was, maybe like three weeks or something. Um, so one specific fish that he did not count, I caught it during that time period when I said they all died. I caught it then like three weeks later, three or four weeks later, it was September. Now water's cooled off. I'm up there fishing, not with him, just fun fishing. Now the water's like 75 degrees. I see one floating dead. I, I go over to it. And I'm thinking, that's got to be that fish. Because this fish was the only one in this area the entire summer. All the other ones were out in the main lake. This one was way up in this creek. And it stayed there all summer. So I catch it during the bad time. I come back when the water's cool. I'm fishing. Find one dead. I pick it up. It was a 38 and a half when I caught it two or, two or three weeks before, whatever it was. I measure it, take a picture of it on the board. And it was rotten. And I it was horrible to do that. But I knew I needed to do that because it didn't have a tag in its back. I did not have my pit tag reader on me, unfortunately. And the, the radio tag in it had rotted out. It was so rotten. So he, I tell him about that. I'm like, hey, that fish is dead. Well, he goes up there and he's tracking it. And that the, uh, the tracker is still in the same spot. And it's been in the same spot until it, the, tra the trackers die in like October or something. So it was still in the same spot till October. But he didn't count it. And maybe... This is how scientific stuff is. I don't know. He didn't count that fish because we couldn't confirm the one that I found dead was the same one. Even though in the picture, you can see where it's cut open. You can see the, the old stitches from where they stitched them back up. It was 100% a, uh, it was 100% the tagged fish and it's dead there. But he couldn't confirm it because we couldn't have a pit tag reader to see that that was the exact same fish even though his tracker's dead on the water and it's been there for three weeks. And it was the only fish like two or three miles from all the other fish. This was all up by himself, but he never counted that fish. And that really irritated me because it was obviously that fish and it never got counted. But 
that's just how the study went down. That's just a little clip of one thing that happened. See, this is, I don't, so this is the interesting piece of this. Cause like before you, you know, you're, you're talking to us about this. Like I looked at that study and, and probably said the same thing. A lot of people said, wow, that's that's interesting. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's how they made it sound. And here's, here's a scary thing too, is I kept asking them, I said, so what's going to happen if, if we find out they're all dying, let's say 80% of them are dying. Are we going to get a season? Cause I was hoping for that. I was hoping for a, a hot water season and how they would have to do that is just say like the second week of June, it's out till the last week of September it's back in and you're not allowed to fish during that period. That would be a good timer. Um, I was hoping for that and I'd ask him about that. And he's like, eh, I don't know. I, I don't really know what they're going to do. And then I, the more I got to thinking about it, I'm like, why would they ever put a season? Yeah, they're protecting the resource, but we all know what runs it. It's money. So if they get rid of the, um, if they get rid of, if they put a season on, now you got them, not that many guys coming to West Virginia to fish in the summertime now because they can't go catch muskies. So they just lost all them fishing, uh, licenses which isn't that much but in my head that's what makes sense but they i don't think they'd have put a study on it anyways even if it, if they were dying and i think that's a good motive for them to not count those fish but i, I mean I'll, I'll say right now not all of them died but there were definitely fish died and there was more fish died in the study than they said they did but they didn't all die there was a couple that should have died i couldn't believe they didn't die but they didn't but 45 plus size fish a lot of those were the worst ones like I, I had a 50 incher with him the second year. I caught it. It was beak hooked. When it got in the bag, it, the hook came out. Didn't have to unhook it or anything. Fish is fine, upright, sitting there. I release it and it swims off. It's floating and then it swims down. And I watch it on the live scope. And this is going to blow a lot of people's minds too because it did mine. I watch it swim down the live scope. It goes down to about the, right at the thermocline and it's sitting there. It's not moving. And Peter said, are you still looking at it? And I said, yeah, I'm looking at it. It's the same one. And the fish turns up upside down. And you know how when a, when a muskie is dead, they, they're shaped like a banana? It turned upside down, went to that shape, and sunk straight to the bottom. And I told Peter, I said, I swear to God, that fish just died. He's like, what do you mean? I said, I'm telling you, that thing just died. I can read that screen good enough that I can tell that thing rolled over, went head shaped like a banana, and sunk to the bottom. He goes, really? I said, yeah. And I said, you're just going to have to double check it. He came over a week later, still in the same spot. Came over two weeks later, still in the same spot. Came over three weeks later, he wasn't there anymore. And he tracked it and it was floating on the bank dead. So in my opinion, I don't think delayed mortality is a thing. I think they die immediately and we would have never known that without, without live scope. I think they go down, they die, they sink, they lay there and they're never going to come back up until they're rotten. And then they float. And that's why we all think it's delayed because we don't see them for another two to three weeks floating. But I think they're dying instantly. I think, I don't know if it's like heat stress or a heart attack or what it is that they're dying, they sink, and then they float two or three weeks later and then you see them again. So it's really interesting to see that. And that was the only one I was able to actually watch die. So I can't prove that they're all doing that, but I think they are. So this is, I got a question about this. Nobody's going to be able to answer this. Maybe, maybe Chase, you asked, or maybe you can't answer it, but you know, like, I guess this is my general perception. So anybody listening to this can criticize me, but whenever I think of this, like I think about that deep water stuff, right? Like you were saying about targeting fish in 
25, 35, 45 feet of water. I immediately, for me, go into like long line, right? Like you're out in the middle of summer, it's 84 degrees, the water temps are 84, whatever, and you're out there fishing deep water, long line and stuff. Like that, that's always for me been like, I just never felt, I would say, comfortable with that. I feel like that's, when I think of this stuff, like it's like that's the immediate thing that comes to my mind. When you have a reservoir like we have here, it's not uncommon for us to fish 10, 12, 13 feet of water. And, you know, with the fish hawk and stuff, like I've sent that down in, in the summer and I've seen very little difference like in shallower water from the surface temp to down towards the bottom of the lake. Like what? I, I'm, I guess my question is like, is it, are we still talking about the same thing? Like, is that, is that the same scenario? Is it the same thing to pull a fish out of 12 feet of water when the temps are kind of relatively close versus like a deep water fish? Cause that, that's always the other argument I hear too. You know what I mean? Like people, both sides of it, people always try to justify it one way or the other. Yeah. Like a lake with a thermocline versus right, one without. Right. Like, yeah. Right. Um, I will say this. It's very interesting to me. The, this isn't not hot water related. This is just normal fishing tomorrow. I've caught fish in Stonewall as deep as 40 feet down. And this is before I went to Minnesota and after, because I've kind of, I do a little bit of experimenting on my own. Um, and so I've caught them in 35 to 45 feet deep in Stonewall. Those fish, they burp when they hit the surface and they swim right off. And I've never, ever had one die because of that here. Is that because is that is that special to Stonewall or is that just special to to our fish down here? I don't know what it is, but I've caught them. I've caught them there, um, in another body of water. Well, Stone Call beside it, it's clear water, so those fish get even deeper. I've caught them in there deep, and they've been fine. They they do not fill up full of air like like Minnesota fish. So there is definitely something weird there. Um, with Minnesota, is it because it's a natural fishery, a, a natural lake, or, or what? what's the deal there? I, I don't know, and I can't answer that. The problem is, is to figure out all that stuff, you're going to have to kill a lot of fish to really figure it out. Um, I tend to... Okay, so when what, I'm what, here, go ahead. I was going to say, what type of tactic are you using, though, when you're going after them in that in that water that, depth? That That is 100% live scoping. Um, dropping a jig down there or Jigging something. Though, that, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's not big. that's not that's not me trying to catch those fish down there. That's me sitting in forty five feet of water, cast to a lay down, and I notice on the live scope there's one down below me 40, 40 feet down. I'm like, is that a muskie? Like first time I did it, I remember thinking, like I, I used to think muskies never went any deeper than twenty feet ever. I used to believe that because that's what I've heard and read in old muskie hunter magazines and guys I talked to. That is obviously that is completely not true, um, but I, I've seen them like that just under my boat and i'm like oh i gotta grab a rod and see if that's a muskie or not and i drop it down there whack catch it i'm like oh that wasn't muskie 30 feet down that's insane and then i caught him deeper i caught him 30 i caught him 40 i caught him 50 and i caught one the deepest one i've ever caught was 65 feet down and 80 feet of water and that one i will say that one had a little trouble and the only reason i caught that one is I, I'm telling on myself almost. I hope people don't think I'm out there doing this all the time. This is a one-time thing. I went down there and I seen that fish. And I'm like, there's no way that's a muskie at 65 feet down. And I drop a bait down there and the thing eats it and I catch it. So what I did is when I hooked it, 
I'm like, okay, well, it's a muskie. So now I'm reeling it up real slow, but I've heard that doesn't even matter um, for, for barotrauma. But I get it to the surface, and I'm thinking, okay, this one, and it, that one did act like it had a little bit of air in it. So that one, I just pulled the hooks. I didn't even net it or anything. I pulled the hooks, didn't want to stress it out anymore, wanted to let it have enough uh, enough power to kick back down and get back down there and equalize. So I unhooked it. And I let it go, and that thing kicked off, went back down, and I watched on the live scope for like an hour just to see what was going on. That fish went down, made it down there, and was fine. Did it die six hours later? I have no idea. Um, I would highly recommend anyone listening to this, do not do that. Don't target them. I'm never going to do that again because that one did kind of scare me. I was like, oh, great. I finally did it. I'm killing one here. And that was here. That wasn't a Minnesota. You do that in Minnesota, that one's 100% dead. But here I did that, and – it did live. If I would have netted it, bumped it, took a picture, I highly doubt that fish would have lived. But since I just shook it off quick and it had enough power to go down, um, it did good, I believe. Now, do you think like that in that scenario, was the lake fairly uh, uniform temperature top to bottom or was that like sitting in a thermocline down there? No, that, that one, it was, that one's no thermocline, that one for sure. Okay. That was in like April. Yeah. That's an interesting topic, especially now. There's a video that just got released by Aaron Weeb with Uncut Angling about yeah. barrel trauma. Yeah. Did you see that, Chase? Yeah, I was yeah. just about so to. That's, yeah, so if everybody hasn't seen that one yet, definitely take a look at it. And you see the advantages of live scope, like Chase is saying, being able to see that fish get back to its where it was. But I'll say this. A muskie is a very fragile fish, as we all know. Um I, I really hope people don't let this is why I've always been scared to talk about this stuff is I really hope people don't listen to this and like, Oh man, there's fish 65 feet down that probably never seen a bait before. I'm going to catch them and they will probably eat because that is the scary thing. Like in Minnesota, when they're down that deep a few years ago, those fish have never seen a bait down there that deep. No one trolls 35 feet deep. I mean, I'm sure someone did at some point, but as far as a general public thing, no. So if you just sunk a bait down there or throw a bait over there, you don't have to do anything. They just eat it. Um, and I, I proved that point with, a with a kid that was fishing with me and Brad, we were fishing some break lines and he's like, well, why don't we out in the open water? And we're like, oh, they're all too deep. It's, it's waste time. And he's like, well, if they're down that deep and it kills them, you'd think they wouldn't eat anything. And I said, no, it's exactly the opposite. When they're down that deep, they've not seen enough baits. So they literally eat anything. And he's like, ah, I don't know about that. So Brad drove us out there. We went out, we found a fish that was like 35 feet deep. I took a tube, red October tube. I cut the top hook off, took both treble hooks off, and I and a kid, the kid's standing there beside me, and I said, watch. I throw the bait over there. I let it sink. I don't move it. I don't do anything. The, the tube is just sitting there, and that fish comes 10 feet away and just, oof, and eats it. And I said, look, he's on there, and I'm holding the rod, and you can see the rod's like, he's swimming with it, and then I let go. And he's like, I can't believe you just did that. And I'm like, I'm telling you, dude, I'm not wrong in this. It, it's it's bad because those fish will eat baits like they've never seen a bait before. So one, they're swallowing them. Two, anybody can probably catch them. But three, the, the big thing is you're going to kill every one of those fish that you catch. And I, it's it's scary because of that. I think I think the northern waters are more in trouble than ours with, with the hot water thing because the hot water thing is not a guarantee. The Minnesota stuff, has been a guarantee every time I've ever seen it. I mean, not not just us. I mean, we we did it 
like two or three fish and we have never screwed with it ever since. But I've seen a lot of people doing it. And when they leave the next day, you go out in the water, there's five or six fish floating dead, but they got a good post on Facebook. They got a lot of likes and it's unfortunate because that's just the day and age we're at right now. So if you have live scope, you really need to be very responsible with it. See, this is dude. I, first and foremost, like, thank you for the transparency on this right? and, and being willing to talk about it because you know, this, this is a big deal, Chase. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know how many guys are, are going to listen to this, but this is a, this is a huge deal that people kind of yeah. hear this perspective and try to understand, like, this is a, this is a major resource for us. Like a lot of us spend a ton of money on these oh, fish, yeah. like, and it's not just about that. It's about the resource. And, you know, that's why like we've, we've tried to do a better job talking about like here in PA, like the musky permit and musky zinc and trying to do what we can as fishermen, whether it's exactly what you're talking about, like not targeting those types of fish or whether it's handling or, you know, whatever it is, like the fish is the reason. I mean, that's the reason we're, we're chasing them is because yeah. of the resource. And when you, when you get somebody that's willing to talk about this stuff and be real about it, like, dude, that's a huge deal. Cause guys need to understand, like, this is going to be a huge problem. Like we're going to get to a point where whether it's live scope or whether it's, you know, everything that we're talking about there, like at some point that resource is going to be scarce and we're not going to have a fish to chase, you know? And, yeah. and, the, and it's, it's scary to think about that, especially here because guys tell me if I'm wrong, but this is the best. This is like, this is the Dale Wiley puts it, these are the good old days like this right now our fisheries in pa are the best they've been in a long time yeah and that's what i feel like where what chase is saying is that what you're really destroying is the trophy fishery mm -hmm. you know what I mean? uh, well like like i know every every fisherman thinks that a lot of guys you talk to them, especially like guys that I've talked to, everyone wants to say that their fishery is the toughest fishery. And the, the reason they want to say that is, is to make them seem like a better fisherman. I won't say that Stonewall is the toughest fishery ever, in my opinion. To me, it is. Is it because I'm overthinking or what? I don't know. But I will say this. I watched Stonewall go from like the absolute giant factory full of fifties that I would have, I would pay someone a hundred thousand dollars tomorrow to figure out how many fifty how many fifties were in that lake in 2019. I would love to know that. Um, because it was, it was absurd. I mean, absolutely absurd 50 or 48 plus fish in that lake. It was more than anywhere, anywhere South of Minnesota, or anywhere South of St. Clair. I would put a lot of money on that right there. And nowadays it's not, I mean, it's Stonewall 100% is still a giant fish factory no doubt about my mind there's still a ton of 50s in there and it might even be the same thing as what i'm saying but i guarantee you this 2019 there was at least double the amount of a big 48 plus out there swimming around that there is right now um it's it's it was incredible it was crazy but during that study tons of dudes from pa tons of dudes from ohio tons of dudes from west virginia it normally wouldn't be there in the winter or in the summertime came there because of that study, because the study was telling everybody come down here and fish. Well, they all did that. Well, the problem is those guys came down and they just had normal fishing day. They went out and they caught fish and I don't blame them. I mean, I get it. I hate that it happened, but 
they would come out catch five six fish a day because one they were very stupid back then two live scope was getting big and it was the best time in the world to live scope out there and so tons of fish got caught tons of big fish got caught but what no one talks about nowadays is how during that time period you saw a floater every day if not two or three every single day you'd see a, a floating fish dead but but delayed mortalities it, there's no difference between delayed mortality and a normal time of year is what i don't understand tons of dead fish out there big fish too not just little ones big ones and i killed a couple myself that were in the study 100 percent. i killed i killed like a 40 i didn't measure it because i knew it was going to die i didn't want it to die but um i killed like a 48 49 ish probably that it shouldn't have died, but it did. It died in, in it was hot water and it just freaking died on me. And I, I didn't even net or I, I did net that one, but I did not bump it or anything. And it, it just, I hope that that stuff never happens to like Ohio or it never happens to like PA or anywhere else. Um, I think we're bouncing back. I, I know we are. We're, we're bouncing back. We're getting uh, at least a steady stocking every year. Um, and the lake's got more food in it than it ever could have had. Um, so I do believe Stonewall is, is an uprising now and that it may even grow bigger fish than it did because about the top end of fish that I would see and catch in like last three years would be like a 52, like a 52 was like a top. Like I felt like that was the biggest fish in the lake. Granted, there's probably one bigger, of course. Now with a lot of the fish gone, I really believe there could be a 54, 55, somewhere around there get caught out of that place in the next five to 10 years. Um, Burnsville is, doesn't have much bait, extremely hard place to fish. Just the matter of, of finding fish. It's the craziest thing I've ever experienced in my life is that lake. It's still one of the toughest places I've ever fished as far as just like, are there even muskies in this place? But that place pumps out humongous fish. I mean, I, I had the the old state record. I was a 54 and the 16th, and then the next year it got broke and the creek below it, which that probably came from the lake. That was a 55 and a 16th or something. So it's got very low density, but it's growing huge fish. So now that Stonewall, I won't say it's low density, but it's lower density than what it was, and it's got a million times more bait in it than than Burnsville does. I'm very excited to see what Stonewall holds in the future for like the next from now to 10 years from now, I'd be very shocked if there wasn't some 54 55s caught out of there. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's not a good thing. It's, it's good for me because I, I want to catch big fish. It's not good for just going out there and catching 10 fish a day, which is very possible still to this day, but it's not as easy as it was. But I don't know. I just hope that stuff doesn't happen to like Ohio and PA and all that stuff. You can come to PA and catch 10, 24 inches in a day. Right. I, we, we got a couple lakes yeah, for you. Yeah. I've been up there a couple times and I really want to go back. I've been to a couple. Nothing crazy though. I've not been to really any of the super known ones. I've been to like the little hide hill secret ones. Ooh. I kind of like I kind of like All that. Right, let's talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel- I feel like we covered a lot of ground there. Like we definitely wanted to touch on live scope and, and kind yeah. of talk about some of that. And I definitely wanted to get, you know, I think we all wanted to get kind of an update where, with where you're at. And 
let's uh, you know, I know we I think we talked a little bit before we got started. Like what's where can people go to see you this winter? Like what's your show schedule? I don't know. Did we did we talk about that or was that prior to I think our... that was before we got started? Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. So yeah, so I mean it's we're coming up on show season, so tell us what the deal is. Yep. I uh I cut down well, I guess it didn't cut down, but I'm going to PA show, I'm going to Minnesota show, and I'm going to Milwaukee show. I was supposed to go to Chicago show. I got a little bit behind because um, I wasn't feeling very great about a week ago, and it kind of messed me up on my uh, planning to get there. So I really don't have enough enough boards built to even go there to make it worth me going. So I'm actually skipping out on Chicago this year, but I will be at Mil Milwaukee, Minnesota, and PA show this year. Very cool. And like, are you still doing the custom stuff? Like if someone wants their own logo put on it or is that, yep. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, that's still a thing. You get on the, uh, on the website and order the custom logo board. And when you order it, either put in the notes, well, you need to send me an email regardless. You got to send me an email of your logo and then I get the artwork done and I order the vinyl and it comes and I build your board for you and you can put really any, any logo you want on there. Um, it doesn't matter what's on there. I've done a lot of different crazy stuff that I never would have thought I've done so far. So nice. there's no, a, no minimum a, on those. What is it? You could do just a single board. Yep. No. You can do a, I do. I charge more because it, it takes me more time. Oh. I have to do more emails and all that crap, but. Um, See, Ryan Ryan E was showing off his uh yeah, he got the, the chapter board. Yeah, yep. kudos to you, Chase, for doing those for our chapter. So those all turned out great. And yep. being a one man show, you did a damn good turnaround time. Yeah. I, I think gotta, that was gotta, a little bit lower period. If you would order them like right now, it'd have been a little longer, but <laughs> Chase, but yeah. Chase, Chase email. Do, you, uh, do you sell a board that goes from like 47, 48, 50? I do, but there's only one that's in my boat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Poorly made would want to know, so I figured I'd ask. Not th this episode coming out. Uh, what is today? Thursday. So Saturday. So our show comes out every Saturday. Um, kind of a shameless plug, but this Saturday is a Tennessee. No such thing. Great. This this Saturday is a Tennessee shoot. We went down to Melton Hill and fished. Um, and then the next one is actually on Stonewall, and you'll get to see the biggest bump board ever on there i put a humongous one in the boat <laughs> i i feel like we need a we need a musky hunks bump board for our our musky hunks fall champion <laughs> that's what i think we yeah, need actually to do. that that's a good idea that that would be a good uh that would be a cool prize yeah we, <laughs> we get that one you want the one that goes one, two, three, four, five, fifty, fifty-one, fifty-two, fifty-one. 50. I tell you what, I want that to go just to forty-six inches. Yeah, that's it. Just stop at forty-six. We're good. Nah, I that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's cool. It's I can do anything. I had a guy the other day message me. He wanted a picture of his dog on there, and I put a picture of his dog on the board. Pretty cool. Better than a picture of his dog on the board. I've had that request. <laughs> Whoa. I did. I, you know, I'm going to turn that one down. Yeah. It's going to be a no for me, dog. Yeah. I know a lot of like bait stuff ends up like uh, crossing over into like the European pike market. Do they ever order bumpers? Yeah. I, uh, you know, Wolf Creek Lures? Yeah. I made like 25 of those for them in November. Okay. It's all milk. I will be yeah. honest. 
backboards are horrible to do because it's so because I measure every one of them, right? I'm putting the sticker on, and it's that's a horrible thing to look at. I, I sit there with – what I did is I took a notepad, and I've done them before, but I never did that many. I took a notepad and wrote down, like, conversions, like two and a half inches is this, and then 16 inches is this. And that way, once I got it on there, I'd check my four marks, and if it's on, it's on. But it, it just – it sucks because there's so many little tiny lines. I can't believe they measure stuff like that. <laughs> but. But you weren't happy when you had to do those metric ones for our DNR, were you? No, I did do one for you, didn't I? Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, you did two of them. Oh, two. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Ryan, yeah, Ryan you want to okay. go halfsies on a uh, on a bump board and millimeters and Fresca logo on it? I feel like this might need to happen at some point. <laughs> can we? Can we get the? Can we get? Can you do two logos? Can we do an icy light logo on there too? If you get logo, yeah. Hey, we'll do uh, beer luges at uh, Owen's Cottage off of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to just just real quick. I want to make sure we we take it just another minute to to plug Mayhem. Ten thousand casts. Like you guys have been doing this for what? It's been what two three? Is it two three seasons? This is the third now? season. This is the third season. The first season um, was wasn't really what it is now the first season is completely different how it is now well the first season i didn't even when we were filming it i didn't really even know i was going to be a big part of it um so it's kind of different but the first the second season was 100 percent um the format that it is now um where it's me and brad and we have guests or whatever we just fishing alone um and then this season is just me and brad and we had a couple guests on but i will say this a lot of this season was just me and him and the majority of the Minnesota stuff was filmed in the evenings for like two or three hours um, because he was busy in the shop. I was busy in the shop and we would get up work. And then in the evening we'd go fishing for a couple hours, um, which I think is a cool aspect because, you know, there's a lot of fishing shows out there and there's a lot of hardworking dudes out there. And there's hardworking dudes are watching these fishing shows like, man, I wish I could fish all day, every day like that. And, and me and Brad's kind of living the best of both worlds. We get to fish whenever we want to because we both have our own businesses, but we also still need to work. So there's a couple episodes through here that we didn't get to fish all day. It was, all right, we got three hours. Let's go. So we pack up, take off, go fishing. And that and that is where it started. We got out there, hadn't been out there. And like, oh, okay, there's bait here. Let's fish here and whatnot. And, and we go through that stuff. Um, and I will say we, we do – we both don't know what we're doing at the beginning of any of this. So we're both trying to get better at all of it. Talking points, um, just editing. Brad does all the editing. I don't touch any of that. I'm the least, least technical 20 to 23 year old there is. So I don't know any of that stuff. Um, so Brad does all the editing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know my age. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Brad does all the editing and then we put the show together and it, we're, we're finally getting to where it's kind of like a, almost, I would say like a story. Like you, you, you talk about what you're going to do and then you go out there and then that it ends up being the day that that's the story is coming together. So it's hard to get it all to where everything makes sense. Instead of where you just go out and you catch fish and you have no idea why that fish is there. You just caught it and you put it on film and then, then you talk about it. So we're trying to get it more. I don't know. We're just trying to improve, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but we've done pretty good. The first year we had bad, 
bad uh, microphones, horrible wind. Last year, I think we had a little bit of that. This year, we should have 90% of that gone. It should be no wind noise. It should all be good. Um, and hopefully, like this first episode that just came out, if you haven't watched it yet, I, we did some good talking points, but there is things that we left out. And uh, I, I wish we could go back and redo that stuff because it's it's hard. It's a lot to do. It's a lot more than you think to do. When you're out there, you're trying to catch fish for the show, and then you need to be talking the whole time like fish are snapping. That's my problem. Uh, Brad gets on me all the time because the fish are snapping, and he's holding the camera like, I need a talking point now. And I'm like, dude, I'm not. I'm catching these fish. Like, no, they're going. <laughs> and that's really not a good thing to be. So I got to work on that. But we're, we're constantly trying to improve. Hopefully, we have enough talking points this year to make people happy. But next year, maybe we have more talking points. So learn learn more than just catching fish stuff because we surprisingly we got we got some comments last year um that were saying that our show was unrealistic and that is not how musky fishing is and i understand where they're coming from but i don't see how it's unrealistic when it's all on film it ain't like we got them tied up somewhere or it's we're not doing the old the old show thing that i've heard happening where you got or you film for seven days, but you're wearing the same shirt and you say it's on the same day. We don't do that. I promise. Um, we have some struggling episodes this year. So guys should probably be happy with that compared to what we normally did. Cause we normally wanted, we want five fish per episode. Every episode is what we wanted. Okay. That is very hard to do and it sucks. So this year with our limited time, we had to make shows out of, a couple fish so there is some shows that only have three fish it's a little lighter load me and brad didn't want it that way but it's probably better because it's it's more real i, I understand where they're coming from on that aspect it's more real it's us going out there struggling talking what we're thinking and then catching a couple fish too in, in the long run so i think guys will really like this, this season more so than last season and i hope next year is even better those guys cool. probably I definitely just got off the water out. getting skunked and then yeah. watch your video and yeah well like the one where i was talking about the dying dog when that one was just insane like we filmed um i was on that i was guiding and then at the end of my guiding brad came down for i think i think he came down for three days and we get out there and it's pretty funny because we get out there and if you watch the episode the first fish we catch jay um jay's an awesome kid but he was very nervous on film just like i was when i first started and the first thing he says is he picks up fish and he goes finally got one in the bag i'm not kidding you we were on that we literally made six casts if that and he goes we finally got one in the bag and i'm like oh, come on jay that ain't happening <laughs> but okay and we filmed all of that we filmed the rest of that evening so we had about a half a day filmed into the dark a little bit and then we got up next morning and we needed one more fish because we didn't want to end it on a night on a night shoot because it's just not it doesn't look good we wanted one more daylight fish so we get out there and pull up on the same spot that we were fishing earlier i think i made three casts and i got one like a little 35 incher we ended the show and then we were going to start and do um do another one i was going to we were going to try to do a big a big bait trolling thing in ohio because that's never really been filmed before that i know of and we were going to try to do it we struck out i could not get them things deep matlocks and headlocks and all that crap so we ended up casting some more and we caught some fish and then went home. We didn't film the rest of it, but it's just kind of funny how it all lays out. But like that show was the show that we got and said it was unrealistic. 
And I get it. I get it where it's coming from. But that was just literally us going out fishing. I mean, I had been there for 20 days straight, so I knew where they were. Um, but they, they just turned on and they started snapping. We started catching the crap out of them. But, I think we talked about it before, but is that all filmed with like GoPros or do you guys yep. have like a dedicated camera guy? Nope. There's no camera guy. It's all on GoPros. And our main camera is an iPhone. Okay. So iPhone with a really nice microphone, but it's all GoPros, which I think, I know Ryan does some of that. Um, GoPros are terrible. Um, all that stuff's terrible, but GoPros are freaking horrible. Heating up and you catch a fish and the camera starts beeping. You didn't even touch it yet. And you're like, oh, great. Didn't get any of that. Um, it makes it difficult. I, I don't know what would be better. I mean, a cameraman standing in the boat would be awesome, but we ain't made of money to be able to do that crap yet. So, um, that's, no, that. that's cool yeah. with the iPhone setup though. That's- yeah. That, that one surprised me the most. Uh, when, like I literally, the first night I went out with Brad, he didn't tell me anything about this show. And I catch a, I actually caught a walleye. It was the first fish I catch in Minnesota was a walleye, of course. And I catch it and I turn around and he's got this big camera like right in my face. It's an iPhone, but it's got like this big case around it, this big giant microphone. He's like, talk. I'm like, huh? He said, talk. He said, I'm videoing. I'm like, well, just take a picture. He's like, no, talk. I want just to sit. I'm like, what do you say? He's like, just say who you are and what you're doing. And I'm like, stutter stepping, talking. I couldn't talk at all then because I never had a camera shoved in my face. But. It was it was a pretty weird eye opening moment for me. I was like, "Wow, what the hell did I get myself into with this dude?" Dude, Ricky Bobby. I I I, I don't I don't oh, know yeah. what to do with my hands. It was probably worse. <laughs> the The funniest thing about me and Brad's relationship is, I met him through doing a podcast on Backlash. It was I think it was the first podcast I did with him, and we hung we hang up the phone, and then Brad calls me back, and we talk for like two and a half hours. And during that conversation, somewhere in the midway, he says, well, what are you doing now? I'm like, well, it's July. I'm just bass fishing out there. It was like, I really can't fish. Water's too hot. He said, why don't you just come up here? I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't afford to go up or anything. And uh, he's like, no. He said, you just stay at the house. He said, you get a plane ticket. We'll pick you up. You can stay here. We'll feed you. No, no costs. And I'm thinking, what's this dude doing? Like, is, what, this is weird. I ain't doing that. So I like change the subject. And then at the end of the phone call, he goes, did you book your plane ticket yet? I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, I'm serious. I'm like, you're 100% serious. So I book a plane ticket. I get up there. You go invite me in. He's like, yeah, dude. All right. I'll have to ask my mom. So I'm like, I was 20 at the time. Brad did not know I was only 20, which 20-year-olds shouldn't be asked his mom anyways. But I was just asked my mom because I, I freaked out. But... <laughs> He said, when I, after I've known him for a while, though, he's told me about this. He said, when you said, I'll have to ask my mom, he said, I thought you were like a 30-year-old living in the basement. Like, I was freaked <laughs> out. Like, what did I just get myself into? I had no idea you were 20. But I would have swore up and down you were 30. He said, you, mom, you meatloaf! <laughs> it is weird. But that was, that was a pretty funny little thing about that. But That's, that's awesome. super cool. Yeah, that's yeah. super cool. What yeah. an opportunity. That's just right. That was taking a chance. Because I, I might have been showing up to a murderer's house or something. I didn't have <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> been a skin quilt. Exactly. I was pretty scared, but there's been no lotion on the skin and no water well. What, what's that what's that line? Just uh we just want to take just want to take pictures, Chase. Yeah. <laughs> just want to take some pictures. 
I'm Brad. Just All right, boys. Well, I got I got to get headed to bed. I got a I got a long day tomorrow. Chase, this has been a blast. You guys can stay on here as long as I want. Dad'll Dad'll approve. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> All right, boys. Have a good night. See ya. All right. See ya. Okay. Do you guys, do you guys have anything else for Chase since old man, <laughs> man Rivers went to bed? <laughs> I, I was just gonna say on that that first episode, Chase, that just got released last weekend. Jigging's always been kind of a tactic that I've tried to figure out. I've caught a handful of fish and things like that. Um, for some of us other guys, it, how do you get the confidence in that in in targeting those fish? And what do you want to see on your electronics going into that too? Um, so I started jigging. Beef. So lot jigging became huge with live scope, as we all know, right? Um, I started jigging and I, I guess I'm kind of special. I'm not special. I got lucky because there was two dudes on Stonewall that were jigging and they were hammering fish when no one else was and they were jigging, but no one would do it because I guess people didn't have confidence. Well, I did it, but I didn't know what they were doing because I wasn't friends with them. Then now I'm really good friends with them, but they were jigging and I thought my dad kind of did some walleye fishing. So our jigging was always bottom bouncing. So I'd be in like 25 feet of water, standing timber, jigging a bondy on the bottom. That is not going to happen. Um, I got snagged, lost tons of baits. And uh, so one day I'm sitting there and Troy and Danny's over there and I'm like 13, uh, it's probably 14, 14 or 15, probably 14. And I'm watching him and Troy's jigging and he sets a hook and the fish comes up head shaking, he loses it. And I'm like, dad, what are we doing wrong? Why can't we get him to eat this way? And Troy goes like this and sticks his rod up in the air and his bondy basically hits him in the elbow and he drops it down. And he starts jigging and the light bulb went off. I'm like, Oh my God, we're jigging too deep. So I cranked up line and I think dad hooked one that day. And then like the next time out, I caught one jigging. So I got confidence in it just by watching Troy and Danny fishing. Um, and then I started doing it and it started working. And what's good about Stonewall is it's like the perfect place to jig. I'll say like nowadays it's not as good because it's happened so much. They've got very smart on jigging. Like I can't even think of the last one. It's probably been two years since I've caught one at jigging at Stonewall. And, uh, but Stonewall is like, if you look at a place and you're like, that would be a good jigging place. That's Stonewall. Full of standing timber, full of structure, full of laydowns. So it's all perfect stuff that you can't even cast or troll. You got to jig. Um, I'm guessing your lakes are more like natural, like weedy lakes, like Minnesota, right? I was going to say my home water lake taps is basically exactly what you're talking about. A stone wall. Same oh, thing. Okay. I mean, it's standing timber and 40 feet of water. Okay. Well, you get that jig on and you put that thing. I tell everybody when they're jigging, no matter where I've been, if you got a, if your bondy is 10 feet down from the water surface, you're sitting pretty. Okay. If you've got live scope or you've got, uh down imaging side imaging whatever and they're they're 20 feet down you can drop it down to like 15 i'd always keep it higher than what you think you would want it though because what i've learned since i've had live scope with watching them eat jigs is when you're bouncing when the top of your jig is two feet above the head and the bottom of your jig is two feet below their head that's not good you can catch fish doing that but you want that jig above their head and something that i've picked up on live scope over the years this is casting trolling jigging everything every day changes um but there is a there is an awareness that fish has imagine a bubble around that fish's head 
Tomorrow, it could be two feet from his head. The next day, it could be 10 feet. Okay. And what I'm talking about is, is if that fish will not notice your bait unless you're within that bubble. So if you're within two feet, it'll notice your bait. Water can be crystal clear and they're not going to move. If you don't hit within two feet of its head, it's gone or it's not even moving. Um, jigging is the same way. So jigging, I want to be right where they're just starting to notice it. I don't want it right here on their nose where they're looking at it. I want it to where they're feeling it. And then you watch them and they'll look up. And if they're looking up and they start coming up, a lot of times I'll raise the jig up a little bit. And I just want it just out of sight. I want them to be able to feel it. I do not want them to see it. And then once they get close enough where they can see it, um, a lot of times they just go and go 100 miles an hour and eat it. So I don't want them to look at the bait and get a good look at what, what's going on. I want them to feel it like, oh, something's dying up there. And then they get just a little bit closer. And as soon as they see that bait, it's like, oh, there it is. And they're going to run up and eat it. But if you get too close on them, you're just going to get fish following and following and following. Um, one thing that's very interesting that I put together after having live scope is jigging back in the day. I used to lose a lot of fish jigging, blind jigging, when I didn't have any electronics. And then I'd catch a lot of fish with a bondi on top of their head like this and both hooks in their eyes, basically. And those fish, back then, I thought they were eating it because it feels like a thunk, okay? Since I've had live scope, the ones you're catching jigging that are eating, and guys that have live scope and have done this will know, them fish are not coming up to your bait and doing six circles around your bondi and then eating it. And a lot of guys will probably disagree with me on this, but I know this for a hundred percent facts. Now I'm not saying those guys, those fish that are swimming around there aren't going to eventually eat it, but 95% of the time that fish never eats it. And what ends up happening is the dude drops the jig down and hits the fish in the head and then they set and then they snag it. They're not meaning to snag it, but they are. Um, so the ones that are eating jigs, you'll watch them. If, if they come up real slow like this and just get on, on the bottom of your jig, most of the time that fish is never going to eat. But if it if it's down here at five feet and your bondy's up here five feet above its head and it's sitting there and you see its fins like getting ready to lunch, they freaking go 100 miles an hour and smash that jig. That's the, that's the bait. That's the fish that you're catching actually eating the bait. Um, so there's a lot of fish getting snagged jigging, which is, there's nothing wrong with that because guys, unless you're trying to do it and that's not cool, but there's a lot of fish that got caught and are getting caught jigging that are never eating the bait. They're just getting hooked because your bait's hitting them in the head. So what I always do, if I do have one that's coming up and looking since I've had live scope, I get one that's following it up. I just keep raising it up. I want to raise it up, raise it up. And sometimes I've caught plenty of fish that, that follow it all the way to the surface. And I do a figure eight with a bondi and the thing eats it. It's just like a cast. I'm, I'm finishing my jig with a figure eight. And the only way I can do that now is with live scope. Yeah, you could have did it with 2D sonar. But back then, if we seen a big mark like that, we're like, oh, my God, we finally got a muskie looking at our jig. We're never going to raise it up. I mean, I think we did a little bit, but not not to the extent with live scope that I do now. So if they don't eat it like shooting on it and eating it and they're following it. A lot of times I'll raise it up and figure eight them. And sometimes you can get them to eat. Sometimes you can't, but that's one way to get them to bite better. But if you got timber, do you got shad in your water there? No, we have no shad, just perch, perch, bluegill, crappie. You got crappies. Yeah. And I've, I've had more success off of like the river channels and things like that. And I've caught them basically on the bottom as well in those instances um, not so much in in the timber like you're doing it there in West Virginia, but I, I just you go into like a new water like 
Ohio, and you you guys did that show there. Um, what other type of structure are you looking for to to jig it? So, um, jigging a lot of times looks looks or is known for jigging in timber. You don't need to jig in timber, obviously. I've caught them jigging in open water. I've caught them jigging. I, we've caught fish jigging the stone wall in six feet of water in, in the mud flat. Like the boat is in six feet of water and you're looking at your jig and he's jigging and the fish comes up and eats it. Um, we've had that happen multiple times. You can jig in weeds, you can jig in timber, but it's just finding if, for someone that's never jigged before. What I would do is if you got a spot on your lake, that's just say it's a, a patch of timber that's 20 feet by 20 feet. And you've caught a lot of fish out of there casting, or you've seen a lot of fish in there casting, put a jig down eight feet or whatever, and go down through there jigging on the edge of that, on the edge of that timber and jig down the other side. If you don't get bit, do it one more time. If you don't get bit and you, and you know there's fish there, cast them. Okay. They didn't eat. Just come back later and jig again. And you might get bit. Um, laydowns is probably one thing that I still have. I won't say I have them to myself out here. I probably won't after this for sure, but a lot of guys overlook laydowns. Um, laydowns are probably even, they're 100% way better um, jigging than um, standing timber. And the reason that is, is because standing timber, when you snag standing timber, you're generally stuck. Okay. Well, when you get into a laydown where it's got lots of little limbs, you can hit that limb with that bondy. And a lot of times you get that bondy off there just by shaking it on a slack line. You can do that in standing timber, but where I'm going with this is, is lay down jigging is way better than standing timber jigging because it's got all the smaller limbs on it. And when their bondy's hitting that, it's banging them limbs. So when it bangs them limbs, back in the day, I always thought shaking the tree and the muskie just goes nuts and eats it. I've watched it now on live scope. I see what's going on. That bondy hits that limb and you lift up and it shakes that limb. All them crappies go they just skirt out of there and i have had it so many times with me and with clients i watch it the client hooks the tree the crappies go nuts well the muskie that's sitting there eats the crappies going quick okay that happens but when you're jigging on a lay down and you shake that tree and then you shake the body off and you the body rips up it's the same exact thing as what them crappies are doing and then muskies hammer that body so if you got lay downs i would highly recommend trying it on lay downs first and then the, the timber, I would just do it on places that that you know the fit the uh, you know the the muskies are using. Um, and shad waters, shad spawn on timber, so um, a lot of shad do will spawn on timber. So anytime it's shad spawn, timber's good. Crappie spawn is probably the best for like the laydowns because all the, the laydowns are full of crappies all the time. So anytime there's crappie spawning, that's an extremely good time to go to a laydown and jig. Um, you don't have to just jig. I mean, jigging is great for a lay down. And then you throw like a, like a Bill Norman, a Bill Norman's an amazing bait for lay downs. It digs in those limbs, does exactly what I'm talking about, shakes the limb and then it deflects off the limb and the muskie eats it. Um, it's just, it's really cool to use live scope and learn what I've learned after doing it before live scope. I'm extremely, extremely fortunate that I grew up fishing out of a canoe and then I got a John boat and then I got depth and then I got um, sonar, where I could actually see like like balls of bait. I don't know if that's what they were back then. And then I went straight from that to live scope, and then I got side imaging. Is is kind of how it's all played out with me. So it's really cool to have me being a young kid, and I'm out there 
thinking about fishing all the time and trying to figure out what's going on. And then some things I, um, I confirmed with live scope and some things that just never was really a good hypothesis, but a lot of things that fishermen talk about, um, are true. And it's kind of insane. Like when you talk to really old fishermen, you know, like 50, 60 year old guys and stuff that they've worked on and, and developed over the years. And, and then you confirm it using live scoop. You're like, how the hell did that old man know that? How did he know those fish were out here sitting on the bottom in the mud where no man's land would ever be? And he goes out there and catches them. And it's just crazy the stuff that you can confirm with live scope because of that, because you can see so much better and see how the fish is reacting to everything around it. Um, but the, the, the bondies and, and when you're jigging laydowns, I'll say this real quick. I know I'm rambling. When you're jigging timber, bondies are 100% the best. Because they're so head heavy, you shake them, that treble hook gets in the tree, you shake it on a slack line, and that lead of that head is wagging around on that limb, and it'll work your hook off. Not always, but a lot of times it will. So like the mail tails that we caught them on in Ohio, that was open water shad ball. So you go out in December to any Ohio lake or any, any shad reservoir, you find the shad. Okay, you found the ball bait now. Okay, if you got two dudes, one of you jig on top of it, one of you jig in the middle of it. If no one gets bit. One of you jig in the same place. And then one of you jig below the bait. Eventually you'll figure out a deal where the ones you're, the fish are sitting in the bait or they're above the bait or below the bait. Um, if you've got live scope and are able to see where they're at, move your, your jigs there. But that, that shad bite in Ohio and all shad reservoirs, but it's really good in Ohio last year and this year. Um, I'm guessing for every year before that too, was amazing for jigging. So you just jig bondies and, and they were eating everything. I mean, it's bondies, twisted tube, um, mojos, mohawks are good from bogs. Mohawks are really good. You can jig about anything, honestly. I can't help but to feel like how inadequate I am as a fisherman after talking to you, Chase. Like just thinking, like thinking about the technical aspects of like all of everything that you said tonight. I'm like, man i get up it's like i just want to get in my boat drop six lines and go like freaking four and a half miles an hour and not think about there's it nothing, there's nothing wrong with that i uh i'm fortunate but i'm also cursed i i started it when i was 10 years old i think and i got a buddy frank perupski he's from pa and i've talked to him and he says dude you realize all the stuff that you've learned and thought about Old people can't think of that. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, dude, your brain was still developing when you started musky fishing. So your brain instantly started getting filled up with more musky stuff than any older dude could ever possibly imagine learning. And he wasn't wrong. It's not, and I'm, and I don't claim to know any, I mean, I'll tell anybody straight out. I don't know jack crap about all these muskies. I just think about this stuff all the time. I have hypothesis and sometimes I prove them right. Sometimes I don't, but I just like to go fishing and see if I can't trick one to eat something. I think that's, that's an interesting look on it too, because like some of us yeah. don't necessarily get outside the box, you know, yeah. you don't, I think there's you a, there's a, right. You, you like, yeah. Like, I think, I think having that, that thought process and that creativity and, and really the willingness to experiment too. Cause like, yep. I know guys get stuck in their way and they just, this is how they catch fish. And man, it's really, it's really interesting to hear how you put all this stuff together and how you approach it, you know, how you get into the technical aspect of jigging 
and really using the electronics. So, yep. man, it's I like same thing I was talking about earlier about how I think there's a problem. This, this, all this stuff I'm talking about, if I was a bass fisherman, I would be so much farther ahead in making money in the fishing industry than I would be now because everyone else is, well, I guess I wouldn't be because everyone else is already like that, but I'm so obsessed with it that I think about this stuff all the time, but this is exactly what you're saying about like what you're saying about me and how technical I am. That's because I watch bass fishing stuff and those guys are very technical. If you, if you listen to them and the problem with musky fishing is, is one, it's generally an older, older guys fishing for them. Older than you is what I'm going to say. The majority of guys. Um, and the problem is, is none of us catch enough fish to start thinking about that stuff. We all, okay, exactly what you just said. If you know you could go out and put two rods out a day and you caught five fish every day, why would you ever do anything different? You wouldn't. I wouldn't either. I mean, you really wouldn't. And like it, like it, West Branch, when I went up there two or three years ago, whatever it was, I went up there and I'd never been there before. Me and my buddy go out and we're idling around the side imaging. I looked at a few points and a few humps on, on the topo maps and I'm looking at them and I'm marking fish. I'm marking muskies and all these dudes are trolling. And I'm like, I wonder why they're trolling. Maybe they don't eat casting. I don't know. Okay. Then we get out there and we start throwing baits and we were scoping at the time. I won't deny that we were scoping pretty hard at that moment. And um we were smashing them i mean crushing these fish and these old dudes are driving by me they're 20 feet from me and they're they're trolling and i'm thinking in my head if i saw a dude pull up here and catch five fish off his hump i would probably quit trolling i'd find something to cast in this boat but they didn't they just kept trolling right past me i'm like oh i, I don't know what the deal is so then there was a tournament that weekend <laughs> and I told Justin, I said, we should end that thing. I mean, we're catching the crap out of them. He goes, yeah, but they probably catch them like that all the time up here. Like, them trollers are probably catching them, too. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. So we go out, and it was a single-man tournament. I got eight, and he got six. And I go up to the boat ramp, and I told, I told Justin, and this was back when this is full transparency of me. I said, I told Justin, I said, I don't really want anyone knowing that live scope's this good. This was still back in those days. I'm like, I'm not going to turn in all those fish. I don't want to blow the tournament out. So I walk up there and I start talking to a couple dudes and I'm hearing about, there's quite a, seems like there's quite a few fish caught. I'm like, okay, I'll just enter them all in. So I entered all eight fish in there and I'm thinking that someone's going to come and just blow out the thing. Well, ends up, I got first and big fish. And then, um, second place was, uh, his name's Neil. I can't think of his name. Super nice dude. Neil got four fish. Uh, Justin never entered the tournament. I forgot to mention that, but I'm like, God, I'm doing something good here. So then I decided to go guide there. And it was the same thing. Everybody was trolling. No guys were casting, but they'd be in 20 feet of water. So on a mini Medusa or a mid Medusa and ripping it as soon as it hits the water. What I'm doing is I'm throwing out there. This is after me just straight live scoping. This is when I was guiding. I gave my clients baits, put weights on their baits, taught them how to do the slack line thing first thing in the morning. I told them I had it, I had it dialed in with the dying dog. I'd tell them count to 12. When you, when you count to 12 real slow for like five feet. Okay. And then start slack line popping it for 10 sweeps. And then when you get done with 10 sweeps, count to eight, redo the process. 
And the reason I did that is because when your bait and you sink a bait down like that and you start popping, the bait goes straight up because your line with braided line, musky line, it's so thick, it's not going to cut through the water. So it's got uh, like a banana shape to your bait. So as soon as you start popping, your bait goes straight to the surface. So what I had them doing was reeling a little bit to get the line to cut through to be straight to the bait instead of going up to the surface. Now it's going straight from my rod, straight down to the bait that's 15 feet down. And now you start slack line popping it and your bait stays down there 15 feet. But that's what I was doing. And I was, we were crushing them. And then guys that were casting, which is, I'm not saying I'm better than them or anything. I'm just pointing out what they were doing. They were throwing baits. They weren't letting them sink. They were throwing a mid Medusa, a regular Medusa, and they were ripping them. They're 10, 10 feet above the fish's head. Yeah. When, when the, when the major minor comes up, that fish will probably travel 10 feet to eat. But I could catch them when the fish were negative because I'm putting baits down there on their head and working them fast and hard to trigger them not to feed them down where they're at the entire cast rather than the beginning of my cast. That's the that's the stuff that I picked up on up there and and it, it turned out to be awesome. And I haven't been up there since. I'd love to get back up there, but I have heard that there's quite a few dudes out there casting now, and that's great. I hope I hope they're freaking whacking them up there doing that. That's awesome. Cause I really want people to catch more fish. I'm not the type of dude that's going to do something. And obviously I'm not the type of dude. I told on myself all night tonight, but I, I want people to catch fish. I don't, I don't need to keep secrets from everybody. I do it. I do it for the learning curve and help everybody out. And, and then the stuff that I told myself on tonight was more so to make people realize that, um, that there is some downfalls with some of this stuff. And I guarantee you a lot of these bigger names, in this industry have done exactly what I said, and they will never tell us all about it. But I think that's wrong. I think they, we'd all need to talk about it and figure out, okay, well, this is what we need to do going forward. You need to teach the guys below you instead of neglecting to say that you ever did it because you're scared that someone's going to crucify you for killing a muskie. I didn't mean to. I just didn't know what I was doing at the time. Then I learned. Now I quit. That's what you need to do. But don't now you don't need to learn because I just told you that. <laughs> it's You're how teaching I, us old dogs new tricks. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I like I love these fish to death. I don't want to see nothing bad happen to them. Even though I've killed plenty of them on accident and for stupid reasons of tongue hooking. And I mean, no matter what, you're going to kill fish. It's just going to happen. You're putting... You're putting giant sharp metal things in around blood vessels and things like that. I mean, I've had at least four to five fish in the last three to five years that were dead before I got them in the net, just getting hooked in the tongue. But there's definitely a lot of things that you can do to not kill more fish. And that's the hot water stuff. That's the um, that's the deep water stuff. And guys can do what they want, but I just hope they listen to that stuff and try not to do it. Well, again, like we really appreciate you coming on to, to have this discussion, you know, be transparent, talk about this stuff. Yeah. And, and dude, there was a, there's a tremendous amount of information on this one. Yeah. yeah we I'm, appreciate I'm, you giving that. <laughs> what was that? I, I said, I'm bad about that. I get to yap and I can't shut up. That's all right. <laughs> that's all right. That's it. That's... Well, I love to talk about though. So it's easy to yeah. talk about. Come back anytime. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate yeah, you guys. Man. We, we yeah. appreciate you. Hopefully, uh, you know, you get the guiding going and, uh, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you wanted to, somebody wants a guide trip. Are you entertaining? Yes. No. For 2024. I am definitely entertaining. Cause, um, if you've already contacted me this year, you, or last year, you probably know that I probably told you no, and just reach out again. 
it's a big ask to ask you guys to keep reaching out, but uh, please feel free to call, text um, me. I may turn you down, but if I can get you in the boat, I will 100% do it in a heartbeat. But I'm hoping to have a better guide schedule this year where I'm actually available to do some fishing with some people. Um, you can call me at uh, 304-816-6607. And then I'm also on Instagram and Facebook at Chase Gibson. Perfect. So, yeah. so musky bumper, one more one more little, uh, I don't even know what we want to call that, a plug. Yeah. Yeah. Musky, if you, need a, if you need a bump board, need some custom logo on your bump board, uh, muskybumper.com. That's all you got to do. Get on there. And you can uh, contact me with any questions you have. My contacts are on the website, but it's chasemuskybumper chase at gmail.com. There you go. And everybody needs to go out there and check out yeah. Mayhem's 10,000 casts. Yeah. Ho- hopefully you learned something from, from a dumb old guy and a dumb young guy. You're gonna have to check out your uh, check out the dying dog video. Yeah, yeah, back watch that one. That was that was an action packed one. That that one we got some slack on because we didn't do a good enough talking points, but the fish were going so good I couldn't quit. <laughs> That's what it was. That's amazing. All right, well, Chase, thank you again, man. We appreciate your time tonight. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Chase. Thanks. All right, Thanks, guys. Chase. Thanks, guys. I had to shake them on my last case. Big O don't play. O don't play.